0: thanks for downloading the episode today. Uh, obviously we're going to talk about Hellraiser and in there we touch on a f- couple of other films like a Serbian film. Uh, so these films obviously touch on some very difficult and potentially distressing subject matter for some people. so if you think that might be you, I'd, I'd say give this one a miss, but otherwise I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you. <laughs> So, uh, welcome to Lupine Transmissions, the podcast where we talk about all things uh, strange, dark, and unusual, and uh, today we're going to be discussing the movie of Clyde Barker's Hellraiser, which was based on his novella The Hellbound Heart. I've got a very special guest to uh, talk about it with me today, uh, my friend Adam Timish, uh, who's probably best known for Shell 5, the collector's podcast, uh, but also has done a bit of other podcasting too, like uh, the, the official Tattoo Girls fan, <laughs> uh, fan cast, uh, if if I recall
1: correctly. Uh, yeah, that that was a podcast, <laughs> <laughs> um, a, very, so a guess- very short-lived podcast, I'll say. Uh,
0: i would i would say seminal though seminal in the yeah. field of podcasting really yeah the... <laughs> <laughs> um so tell us a bit about yourself adam and uh you know what what your kind of background is with podcasting and and why you're on here today i guess
1: sure uh yeah i I don't know really uh many interesting things to tell but um i uh live in southwest missouri in the united states not sure who the audience will be for the podcast whether that is uh impressive or not but that's where i am uh i'm good friends with uh one of our mutual friends uh blake and he uh he and i kind of grew up together since we were uh teenagers and um one day, we both kind of discovered we had a mutual uh, fondness for collecting action figures and other uh, nerd paraphernalia, and so we decided we'd start talking about it on a podcast one day, and uh, uh, we're about four years into that podcast. It's the one you mentioned, uh, Shelf Life, a collector's podcast, and um, it, I, I think it goes as well as anybody could expect a. Uh, podcast to go right now with with as many podcasts are out there to choose from uh, we have you know several hundred people that listen to us uh, each episode which is is great we're not making money or anything but I, I don't know that that's necessarily what uh, we were in for we're just kind of you know it's a, a hobby to talk with your friends I guess and um, so through that of course we met uh, my gracious host here uh, Tom and and <laughs> Tom has been so kind to invite me on here, knowing that uh, I also have a a great fondness for um, uh, for horror movies, and and certainly a fondness for the one we're going to discuss today. So, Mm. so so, uh, I guess. So, what are you what are you drinking this evening? Then I am drinking a Blue Moon, which is a Belgian style white beer. Oh, we we yeah, we get Blue Moon
0: in Australia you, as well too. Yeah, yes, it's not yeah. it's not
1: exactly a, a small micro brewery beer. <laughs> so I think Coors bottles it, which is one of the largest distributors in in the states anyway. So
0: yeah, it's it's a, it's quite a good one. I'm very fond of it. Uh, you can get it on tap a few places, so I make sure I do whenever I can. But it's interesting you've gone with that because I'm drinking the Four Pines Heffeweizen. Uh, which while not exactly the same, is definitely in that kind of wheelhouse flavor wise, um, sort of Belgian knockoff type thing. So yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: I've I've found that really that's kind of you know when I started drinking a little bit, I you're kind of all over the place with where where you want you know what kind of beer profiles you like and everything like that, and in that Belgian style wit beers really uh, kind of where I've I've settled the thing that's got kind of those those uh, flavor or those citrus notes to it. Um, Is kind of where I've I've settled on, you know, where my palate really likes to to linger, I guess
0: definitely definitely and me too and i think for people who don't um like it, they're one of those ones that are great if you do drink a lot and enjoy a lot of broad range of beers but conversely also good if you're if you if you're wanting to start drinking it's it's much easier going than something like oh here's a 10 percent ipa with 100 plus ibus and, and <laughs> right, so on and right. so you know the, um tastes like coffee grounds uh, and that's meant to be a good thing you know <laughs> that, <laughs> that sort of a, that sort of approach yeah so <laughs> um but I, I guess then we'll talk a little bit about the obviously we'll talk about the movie and we'll talk a little bit about the man behind the movie uh in, in a little bit but um how, how did what was your kind of gateway into horror because i think we have some similar touchstones here from from what we've talked about previously uh, One one of the reasons i originally got into shelf life, uh, i started listening maybe episode five or six if memory serves and um uh adam was on there talking about having a um sort of uh difficult childhood growing up during the satanic panic shall we say uh <laughs> and our mutual friend josh was also on who had somehow managed to have a,
1: a worse experience than either of us combined i think yeah. with it during his own childhood he he had i i think i would and i'll answer your question more directly but in terms of our, our friend Josh I, I feel like I had the type of experience where uh, there was a certain amount of of pressure and censorship in, in everything I did um, but to the extent that I was able to to grow out of it and um, you know and be able to kind of eventually pursue my own interest which is also the case with Josh but I, I do feel like the level of pressure and censorship put on him was was to a damaging extent i i I think that it it causes him some some real uh some real anxiety uh today so but Mm, i'm certainly not
0: oh sorry sorry you go i was just gonna say
1: i'm certainly probably not qualified to to make any of those diagnoses necessarily (laughs) but um but he definitely he definitely did have a harder go of it than than i did for sure
0: yeah, we, we maybe when we eventually do the um the satanic panic episodes which will in, inevitably come as part of the purview of the subject matter, I might have to have him on as the guest, I think cuz he'll he'll have some takes. So. Yeah. But <laughs> um,
1: uh yeah, to to answer your question, I uh my very 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 first horror memory is I think I caught glimpses of the film Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um which is based on uh, Bradbury. And I had had, when I was probably five or six, one of those nightmares that will just uh, kind of stay with you. Like I would wake up in a panic, go back to sleep, and have the the exact same nightmare. Um, and it was all kind of based on that, around that film, that something wicked this way comes, and scared scared the hell out of me. Um, but the, the first time I remember actually watching a full horror movie and just just really being... Impacted by it in, in a positive way was uh, one night I was staying with my uh, with my cousins and they rented and it was fairly new at the time I, I think it was probably new to video uh, they had rented uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Freddy's Dead and uh, and we watched it and of course again I had <laughs> I had nightmares related to it but <laughs> but I absolutely loved the that that character of Freddy and that sort of kind of fun. Uh, type of of horror i i don't know that i'd call it a horror comedy but just very much an entertaining kind of fun horror movie not a very dark and bleak kind of uh depressing horror movie that a lot of them are <laughs> um but uh it,
0: it, it wasn't martyrs or,
1: or something like that <laughs> right, exactly uh and of course now you know now i'm a huge freddy Krueger fan because of that i i think it was formative in that way but i i certainly recognize that freddy's dead now is probably the the weakest <laughs> of that franchise but it was it was the one that got me into it so
0: yeah, I, t- I think it's interesting which one, like, the ones that make the strongest first impression are often not the best ones, necessarily. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. um, my my parents were always a bit funny about horror. Um, uh, both Adam and I, uh, though separately and on d- different continents, both grew up in the church, and we're both sort of 80s and 90s kids, so... Um, For those of you who didn't grow up in that environment, there was very much stigma often attached to those kind of films because they were demonic or whatever. And I I wouldn't say my parents bought into that wholesale, but definitely there was a a pretty close critiquing of what we watched. with that said, uh Dad was always a very big universal horror guy, so I remember being about nine and watching the old Mummy with, with him, with Boris Karloff, uh, which was great. And still, uh, even now, I have a big poster of that hanging in the, the room where I'm recording right now. Uh And then uh, a few years later, Mum showed me The Wicker Man, and I, I've never been able to quite square how my mum, who was quite conservative at the time, was sort of so into the Wicker Man, (laughs) but yeah, yeah, you know, so that stuck with me. And then as I got a bit older, I discovered slashes. I think the first one I ever saw was Urban Legend or something like that, which was not great in hindsight, but fun enough at the time. (laughs) Sure. Um, And then as I kind of got older and had more I guess, agency, and and perhaps more importantly, had a TV in my own room and later a DVD play to go with it. Uh, Yeah, horror was just the natural thing. I think initially in part because it was so forbidden, um or or implied to be forbidden but it, there are other aspects too like i was always a huge special effects fan and and you see all of special effects get innovated in horror that later filters its way it filters its way out to something more mainstream like um you know i can guarantee you all the aging makeup effects they used in like Mrs Doubtfire had probably been pioneered in in, in some other uh, lesser known horror film yeah <laughs> um, yeah and uh, but I think also realizing eventually, and and this is maybe where we'll segue into Hellraiser a little bit, was sort of having this image of these movies that doesn't necessarily actually square with what they're what they're like. Like I remember first probably seeing Pinhead when I was probably ten years old or something like that because it was just kind of a pop culture thing. And I had this sort of horrific image of what the movies were like, with I don't know people being decapitated and bodies flying everywhere, and so on and so forth. Yes. Um, and 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 that some of that does happen for sure when when I actually saw it. But um, it's much more it's it's kind of a family drama more than anything else. And I think that was the beginning of my realization. Um, that horror actually often isn't really about these monsters and things like that. It's 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 more about, uh, uh, or I guess at its best, like metaphorically expressing other stuff and, and using it as a as a means to deal with some of these more complex human issues. I guess. But was it similar for you? Would you say? Yeah,
1: it it absolutely was. In fact, I I had made some notes about that because I I felt like when I first saw Hellraiser and I had probably, I, I think I was a little bit later to Hellraiser. So it wasn't like one of those first horror movies that really opened my eyes to the possibilities of horror. But at the same time, it, it was so much different than the, the standard horror movies that you see. Cause it's not quite a monster movie, although those elements are there. Um, and it's not quite a, uh, a slasher movie although those elements are there you know it's it's kind of defies a sub-genre of within horror but also gets into such bizarre um imagery that like i said unless you're really really in heavy with horror movie or with horror movies it's it's got a lot of imagery that you don't necessarily see all the time a lot of the religious icon iconography um you know, you got kind of these. The monsters have these. I don't know these sexualized gore. I I guess it would be the yeah, best way to it's, describe it's, it. It's, um, it's
0: like but, exagger- really exaggerated BDSM stuff or that kind of thing. Like right, exactly what people maybe imagine BDSM to be when they don't really know anything about that topic. I guess yes, and it,
1: and it blends sexuality with the horror in such a way that is just very very unique. Um and frankly off putting, you know, when you're not when you're not accustomed to that sort of, of thing. So yeah, it, it definitely had this when you're watching it for the first time, you know, especially if you haven't seen a lot of horror like me at the time, uh, it definitely does have that effect of, whoa, this is this is something completely new and different. And that's a good thing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. We'll 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 come back to that because cause that's a good point. But I think maybe let's let's talk a little bit about um Kai Barker himself. So, um he he's I I guess if you were going to think in terms of big horror writers, the the biggest one at the moment and and has been for you know all our lives really is is um Stephen King, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of sales, now. I think if you were going to, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to put together a definitive ranking here or anything like that. But I think it's fair to say that um, if Stephen King's number one, Clyde Barker's definitely in the top five, at least. He's he's not that far behind in terms of things like sales or um, critical acclaim in terms of general fan popularity and reception. Um, or,
1: social, or social impact
0: even, yeah, or cult- yeah cultural
1: definitely. impact. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree. So, um, but he's also not quite as much of an open book as um, as Stephen King is. So there's definitely things known about his life. He's not a he's not like Thomas Pinchon, who's a complete enigma or anything like that. But um, <laughs> um, you know, so he he was born in 1952 in Liverpool in England, um, which, which is about three hours from London for for those of you who aren't as familiar with England. Um, and he kind of grew up and uh, I've seen this great interview with his parents from the 80s when he was appearing on a TV special about himself and they were sort of like, oh, Clive was always a bit odd, but, you know, uh, we, ju- we just were always wanting to encourage him, you know, and now he's gone great. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, they really, and this would have been about the time Hellraiser came out, so they're obviously just really proud of their son, and like, it, it, whereas I can imagine some other parents wouldn't have taken it <laughs> nearly as
1: well. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, I was reading some of the trivia on the, the Hellraiser uh, IMDB page, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, you have to take all of that with a grain of Salt because there's not exactly sources cited or anything on there. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, Did you know that the...
0: you s- summon real demons
1: for this? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, but one of the one of the pieces of trivia said that he was watching the movie with his mother, uh, and when this, the the opening titles came up and she saw his name on the screen she started weeping because she was so happy for him seeing you know his son's kind of success manifested in this way and he leaned over and whispered to her that's the only time you'll be happy for the next two hours which I thought if it's true yeah. <laughs>
0: that's the only time you'll be happy for the next two hours <laughs> Right. if, <laughs> if, you, if that's true it's a great quote so. <laughs> well he, he kind of so he was always very interested in your Australian and so on from a very young age and um, as he grew up he became uh, uh, from from his teen years I believe he was um, writing plays and staging them uh, and that's how he actually met Doug Bradley who, um, who plays Pinhead um, they went to high school together I think there was a couple of years between them but uh, they they attended high school together I think Doug Bradley has been uh, collaborating with him on and off for, geez it must be the better part of 50 years at this point now um so and he he produced a number of plays and then some of those were turned into short films that he made himself and and that sort of thing but um, he didn't really he just stride till he was probably uh, in his early 30s when he published his short story collections, the books of blood, um, which were originally published in six sort of like I won't say chapbooks, but but kind of like short compilations, and you can still buy them now. They're they're kind of um, they've been compiled into two big volumes, and one has volumes one, three, and the other has four, five, and six. And um, there are a number of stories in there that have since become quite famous, more so through their film adaptations. So there was a short story in there called The Forbidden, um, which in the 90s got adapted as Candyman. Um, uh, there was also uh, The "The Last Illusion was adapted as Lord of Illusions in the mid-90s, which has the, the guy from The Mummy in it. Um, and there are a few others <laughs> as well, which which escaped me at the moment, so... <laughs> but they were kind of published in 84 85 when he was hitting his early 30s and he'd he'd been writing for a while but he'd sort of been not hugely successful and he apparently supplemented his income by working as a as a hustler for a while um which which you can sort of see reflected particularly in stuff like the hellbound heart which would come out in 1980 uh 1986. now Obviously, the movie itself came out in 1987, so I don't know all the details here, but a year between publishing the story and then having it completely scripted and turned into a movie and so on is is quite a feat, so um, he'd attracted a lot of buzz by then already, though, so I suspect that this may have been one of those things where the film rights were already sold before he'd actually published it i I know a similar thing happened with jurassic park like that was pretty much in development as a film from before the time it even hit the shelves so um but I don't know, like, it's, it's one of those things. So, um, by the mid-90s, he'd already established himself as kind of a bit of a horror legend. And and you could even make the case that by the late 80s as well. But, uh, you know, let's, let's say the mid-90s. So, he'd had some very successful film adaptations. Um, he was pumping out books at a rate of knots at the time. Not as prolific as Stephen King, but, you know, like, uh, virtually none of us can be as prolific as Stephen King is at, at anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> um and then uh, in the last few years, there's been a bit of... It, it, it's been an interesting few years for him, though. Um, in 2012, he went to the dentist and uh, had to have a root canal, and he ended up with toxic shock syndrome, um, and then woke up a week later. and uh, But he... I'm not totally sure that he's still quite recovered now. Um, you can read interviews with him from the time, and he's talking about how he's exhausted, he can't get up and about... And then I read an interview with him from a few years later, I think 2017 or something like that. And he was kind of saying, I've only left the house something like five times in the last five years. Um, And at the end of 2012, one of his former lovers sued him. Uh, and claims that he would allegedly given him HIV, and then made a few other very, un, un, you know, unsavoury inflammatory allegations about his sex life and other personal habits. And it it was quite a saga. But fortunately, well, I, I don't know if I want to say fortunately because you need to take these sort of accusations seriously. But the 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 judge ruled in Barker's favour in the end and threw the the, the court case out. Um, so, he was never super high profile in the same way that Stephen King was. Like, if you go onto Twitter, Stephen King's been on there pretty much every day since Twitter started, like popping <laughs> yeah. off at Republicans or, or at the moment, Trump, or sometimes making um, maybe ill considered statements. Um, and, and sort of, you, you know, I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for Stephen King, but. I think he's also um, a product of his time in, in certain ways um, that, that other people more qualified than me could talk about. Um, but yeah, Clyde Barker's never sort of really done that. He's always had spokesperson on his behalf. But the, the implication I get from putting together bits and pieces is that I think after he got ill, he genuinely was in a bad way for quite a long time. But then you compound that by having management who are maybe not necessarily looking after your best interests. And um I think it's very easy to think of writers as kind of existing in their own little bubble and, you know, working you know, he wakes up in this empty mansion, goes and works, and then that that's kind of all and then sends off files to the publisher. <laughs> but right. but it's not like that at all. Like he he'd have a whole team of staff around him and, and people sort of helping him with things and taking care of his day to day stuff and agents who were trying to sort out movie deals and this that and the other but um so the implication that he's kind of made that without naming any names is that some of those people that were very close to him were taking advantage of him telling the press he was close to dying um spreading other stories like that he had aids or that he was drug addict and this that and the other um but uh, he, in the last uh, year or so, I'd say, um, and and some of this has been a bit delayed, obviously with the pandemic going on. Um, there's been a, quite a resurgence of interest in him. Um, there's a new adaptation of the Books of Blood that just came out. Um, there's a remake of Candy. Do you know if it's a remake or a sequel? To new I believe menu?
1: it's one of those. What do they call them? It's Hollywood's oh, it favorite. Yeah, it's Hollywood's favorite new trend where it is a. I can't remember what their technical term for it is, but it's, it's technically a sequel, but in kind of a remake type of way, (laughs) like they, they make it exist within the same universe as the original film, but it's pretty much a whole new story. That's kind of retreading the original ground on that. So,
0: yeah, sort of like the, the Halloween
1: that came out in 2018. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Soft, soft reboot.
1: Yeah. That's, that's the word I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, so, um, now, I was actually, so that was meant to come out this year too, but I believe it's been pushed back because everything's been pushed back this year, so I was actually, I'm going to date myself for a little bit here, but uh, I actually met him in early 2019, Uh, I was lucky enough to travel to Atlanta and go to the Days of the Dead convention there. And uh, he and some of the other Hellraiser cast members were there. And so I got to chat with him. And I will say he looked very, very frail when I when I saw him. I, I was amazed at what a, um, how small he was and so on. I'll have to show you the photo later on. But, um, but he was super energetic and he was obviously very with it and so on mentally. So I, I certainly don't think he's down and out yet. But I, I can see that he's had a tough few years kind of thing. So.
1: Yeah, he's probably mm. not... Not writing as uh, feverishly as he may have once been. No. Doing.
0: The only one he's really had come out the last few years was one called The Scarlet Gospels, um, which was kind of a sequel to uh, The Hellbound Heart and also in a way, the movies and sort of like expressing some of his d- distaste for some of the later sequels, which yeah. <laughs> which which I think is pretty universally shared. It, I won't <laughs> pretend it was a great book, um, and there's definitely some other kind of thoughts to, to have around that, but this probably isn't the time or the place. Sure. <laughs> um, but, I, but I think part of the reason as well, too, is that uh, he... he I think there was a moment where maybe he could have been as big as Stephen King, but I also think that he is slightly more strange. Like Stephen King's yeah. works tend to deal in pretty, and I, I don't say old-fashioned as a pejorative, like more, but they they deal in a very like. Uh, black and white, uh, good versus evil kind of view of the world for the most part, and you know, good eventually triumphs over an e- over evil, evil takes its toll on good, but good still wins. And a lot of Barker's work is is a lot more abstract. Like uh, I can see why Stephen King would write something like um, Stand by Me. Uh, I can't imagine Clyde Barker doing the the same thing, you know, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um, and, and as well as that, Barker's also had a lot of projects that didn't really come to fruition, which I should add is, is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, like movies get cancelled all the time, video game deals fall through, books get delayed, like all, all this stuff happens. Um, whereas, um... When Stephen King said, hey, there's a movie of one of my books coming out, you knew to be in cinemas within the next 12 months, you know. And right, like, right. Yeah, and I think that's partly because he tends to take much more hands-off role in the things he does. Like, he sort of says, I've sold the rights, so it's out of my hands, do what you want with it. And and that's also why a lot of Stephen King's films uh, got awful. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think that there's that, that willingness to be less involved has has yielded certain benefits for him in terms of raising his brand in a way that i don't think clive barker has necessarily been as keen to do i suppose so
1: yeah and and i was going to say that similarly and and keep in mind i've not read many of stephen king's works only only a couple um all the way through but i i feel like wherever he is edgy or as edgy as, as clive barker he's never quite as edgy as clive parker but where he does get very edgy in his books gets completely lost in the adaptations of his films and and that is something that i i feel like a lot of people's exposure to stephen king is through uh the adaptations of of his work and not as much through reading now i'm speaking again mostly from my perspective i'm sure there's a lot of people that would argue that um a lot of people based on his book (laughs) sales um but me personally my my biggest exposure was through his movies so Mm. if i'm only comparing adaptation to adaptation and i'm comparing something like um sometimes they come back i don't know if you're familiar with that one yeah
0: yeah yeah i haven't seen the movie but i've read the the story it's based on yeah the um... So, so
1: if, if I'm comparing something like that, kind of about these 1950s bullies, you know, that are coming back as ghosts comp- and then comparing it to Hellraiser, of course Clive Barker is going to seem like much more of of a uh, kind of edgy, gritty type of, of writer. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So-
0: yeah. Well, the... I mean, Stephen King loves his 1950s, like you know, we're bullies because we're bullies sort of uh, trope, doesn't he? Like it, it pops up in here, it pops up in Stand by Me, it pops up. <laughs> right. What what, what has it, it'd be easy to list the works that hasn't popped up? in, let's be honest, he,
1: <laughs> yeah, he loves playing in the in his childhood. Basically, he loves yes. he loves creating nightmares mm. from his own childhood, base you know, essentially, and and so that's where a lot of that we you know gets repeated over and over and over
0: again. Uh, Absolutely. And, and Parker, funnily enough, um, I I managed to dig up an old issue of Fangoria um, from when Hellraiser 2 was coming out, actually, uh, that has a big interview with him in there. And he sort of very specifically says, I'm not interested in repeating myself and doing the same thing over and over. Like, Uh, I make no bones about wanting to be commercial, but, uh, you know, that that's not the same thing as just repeating myself from book to book or movie to movie and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, obviously, well, you would know Hellraiser 2 is a substantially different movie to the first one. Um, They're both horror, but aside from that, they're barely in the same genre, I would say, you know, so... Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that, so, I mean, look, there's, that, that kind of brings us to the movie. I, I think actually there's, there's, there's one fairly important detail, but I think probably if you're listening to this, you're probably already aware of it. Um, is, uh, Clyde Barker is also gay and um, has, has been very open about that since, since pretty much day dot when he, when his work started breaking out. And I, I do think that's um, certainly reflected in Hellraiser, um, not, not, being gay myself i wouldn't want to comment on it hugely about all the the sort of implications that you can read into his work from there but i think that um yeah i, th- I think we'll, we'll, that that'll come up as we talk about the movie a little bit i think so um what 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 would you say is the story of hellraiser adam yeah <laughs>
1: Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, yeah, because there's so, a lot,
0: there's a lot. Like there's probably, you know, I think if this movie was coming out tomorrow, they'd
1: they'd ring it into a trilogy or something like that, rather yeah. than. Um, <laughs> and and if we have time, I I would love to talk about uh, the potential for a remake in this, but I'll we'll, oh, we, we'll we, start we, we, we're we'll gonna start talk, small. We're going to talk
0: about that, yeah. <laughs> we, we're going to talk about the remakes that are always coming but never arrive, right?
1: Right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh So, really, I I would say it's a story about at least at its face, at the surface, and what we're given from the beginning. Um, it's a it's a story about a, a, a married couple that's in a relatively loveless relationship. Uh, the wife, especially, is very uh, unhappy and seemingly unfulfilled, um, and she gets an opportunity to. Uh, Maybe kind of relive some some of her, her more passionate days through uh, this kind of um, I don't uh, undead entity of a past lover, which is also a result of some family drama, uh, and then you know the the plot kind of uh, unravels from from there. Take, take and, some
0: turns, yeah.
1: yeah, and and I really f- I think taking some turns is a great way to put that because it. Really shifts focus. I mean, that movie from point A to B to C really shifts focus on who it's about, what it's about, uh, you know, and and like I don't think that's a detriment to the film at all, but it does make it a little bit tough to nail down, kind of like I had explained earlier with. You know, the shifting kind of what what genre or what subgenre is this movie even? So, mm-hmm. well,
0: I funnily enough, um, I, I was I also have a copy of Doug Bradley's book, which he he published about 2001, and it, it's part him just talking about being actor, um, but it's also part autobiography as well, too, and talking about some of the movies he works on, and he he kind of describes. Uh, it is a gothic ghost story, um, mm. which which I don't think is totally inaccurate because it's got that. Even though it's not literally about ghosts, it's got the you know the creature lurking in the, the attic and that kind of thing. And yeah. you know, um, it, if it was shot a slightly different way, you would definitely be able to frame it as like, is Frank actually real or is he a hallucination or or things like that? You know, but mm-hmm. um, but but that's not the direction they they go with the pretty literal direction, pretty pretty much straight away kind of thing. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um but yeah, I guess in, in summary, like the I think the thing that tends to surprise most people when they first see this one is that Pinhead, who's on the poster, on the box, on every piece of merchandise for it, um, really isn't that big a part of the movie. He he kind of shows up at a few key points, but he's certainly not the main villain and you can even argue that he's not perhaps even a villain within the, within the framework of the film.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I certainly think it's, it's one of the things that stood out to me when I originally watched it is, uh, and you know, another thing I read about it was that it was kind of being made at the peak of, uh, you know, Halloween, Friday, the 13th nightmare on Elm street, you know, Mm. all these series were having huge, uh, huge days at the box office. And, and that's, you know, kind of the, uh, environment that this movie was being made in and I, I think there was a giant desire for there to be this new iconic monster and that's what people were expecting uh, you know it, certainly it was what I was expecting going into the movie and then you you see it and yes yeah, very minimal uh, performance uh, or you know uh, exposure to to Pinhead and the other Cinebytes but again I, I think it all works so well <laughs> uh, mm. despite mm. that but but yeah, that's not at all what the movie's a- about.
0: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give a I'll give a brief pot rundown um, just for in case you haven't seen it. Again, probably if you're listening to it, you have seen it. But um, so it it kind of opens in Morocco. It, it, well, it looks like Morocco, but I think it's meant to be more generically a you know quote unquote exotic locale. Um, and we see this guy named Frank who buys this mysterious box. Uh, he takes the box home with him to a place that could be London but could be Connecticut or could be any number of other places and was deliberately kept vague because they wanted to be able to sell to both American and English audiences (laughs) Um, but then he sort of opens the box and these horrific creatures um, pinhead among them show up and kind of literally tear his body apart and um, the implication is kind of that we'll talk about bit about this more in the theme section, but the implication is kind of that Frank is um uh, you know, this ultimate hedonist uh, and occultist who uh has sort of experienced all the uh the possible pleasures of this world and so he wants to take it to the next level by getting the supernatural involved and uh boy oh boy was that a rookie mistake. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, it flashes it flashes forward a few uh, it doesn't really give you a time frame, but I think it's kind of implied to be a few months. Um, Frank's brother is back is is at the same house and he's moving in with his new-ish wife um, and it's kind of implied that uh, Frank's got, you know gone missing and no one's really sure where he is but so why not move into this house you know um, so uh, this scene was actually one of the most disgusting in the film with all the rotting food and the maggots and everything
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's important to note that Frank. To me, I get the impression when I watch it that he was very much kind of squatting in that house. Uh mm-hmm. I, I think it was a family home, so it wasn't that he was not able to be there, but I get the impression that he was kind of living there without utilities, uh, or anything, you know, paying any any sort of bills or anything like that. Just yeah. kind of just kind of in this squatting type situation where yeah he he left the police the place completely kind of in shambles so
0: yeah well, I mean, and you see you see what was presumably his bed and it's not a proper bed, it's just like a few cushions and and some blankets thrown together on the floor and you know then they're all kind of covered in blood too for no no clear reason like because he wasn't in there when he was um doing his thing so you know yeah. it's uh yeah there's definitely some unsavory implications <laughs> yeah. um there's all this occult paraphernalia everywhere and um th- again that sort of comes up with like that's very Kai barker i don't know that he's practicing a practicing occultist himself but he certainly has a lot of mates who are um and uh having had a few mates myself who are into one form or another of um Magic with with a K on the end. Like uh, I don't know that you would necessarily say this stuff is accurate, but it certainly looks like what you'd expect it to look like, right? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Um, from a certain from a certain point of view, I'm I'm sure it looks very uh, uh, frightening. But...
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, the hus- uh, so Frank's brother Larry is moving in with his wife Julia. Now Julia is so good; she she might possibly be my favorite character in the in the movie because initially she's sort of sold as this sort of just you know disaffected and disenfranchised bored housewife and to some degree that's that's what she is in the movie but she also just comes across as instantly evil as well yeah (laughs) I I was gonna
1: that's something that has always I I don't know that this really gets into being kind of a modern day fairy tale necessarily but I, I do feel like there are certain elements that that have kind of a classic fairy tale feel to it and her is kind of a wicked stepmother yeah, i think yeah. plays so perfectly she does she plays that role so well and it's real it really is a strong part of the movie
0: mm. and i think i think she literally says that in the second movie too doesn't she she's like yeah, I'm she... a wicked stepmother or something <laughs> yeah yeah hellraiser 2 wicked stepmother like <laughs> um so any, anyway, um, as a result of uh, some blood accidentally being spilled in a, in, a, in an accident, Frank is resurrected from his kind of dismembered form, but he's um, sort of uh, they they never really explain it, right? So in the in the novella of the Hellbound Heart, they they kind of imply that um, when the Cenobites come and take you away. Um, they they sort of reinforce you so that you you know with magical means to kind of endure all their horrible experiments <laughs> and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and uh, it also kind of hints that part of the reason that Frank was able to come back at all was because he was an occultist and he'd made kind of certain. Uh, I, I don't want to say pacts or anything like that, but he'd t- taken certain precautions to be able to come back if he needed to. Um, The movie doesn't really go into that, it just sort of takes a because magic sort of approach to it, which which is fine, it's not like an important detail, but he comes back as this kind of like desiccated, flayed corpse sort of thing, Um, and uh, it turns out he used to be Julia's lover, and there's some sort of sexy but deeply upsetting scenes where the two of them are, you know, flashbacks where they're having sex and so on.
1: Um, Which well, apparently had to be even scaled back some because they were yes, uh, yeah. originally a little bit too uh, too we're, heavy and too we disturbing for the uh, MPAA. We were only allowed uh, two thrusts instead of three. <laughs> three yep, was exactly. obscene.
0: <laughs> yeah, apparently there was sort of... Um, uh, I listened. I actually listened to quite a good podcast the other week, and I want to give a big shout out to it because it was definitely helpful as part of the research of doing this. Over on the CinePunks Network, um, there's a podcast called Evil Eye, uh, and they did a great podcast on Hellraiser and the music of Coil, who we'll we'll talk about a little bit in the moment. Uh, and they sort of talk about. Uh, yeah, they they I, I didn't necessarily agree with all of their conclusions because I, I though I appreciate why they they came to the ones they did, but they sort of said like they'd both really been hoping that this would be much more graphic and full on film on that front. Um, but you know, studio stepped in and and obviously was going to constrain things a little. Which I, I don't know, I can kind of see it from both sides. I think that if if it had been more graphic, it might not have reached the audience it did. Um, but conversely, it would have it would have also been interesting to see what would have happened if he if he was fully unrestrained, I guess. Um, so anyway, then we get to a dinner party, and uh, the, you know everyone's trying to play happy families, but uh, you know the the monsters literally lurking in the attic. Um, larry's daughter Kirsty shows up. Um, Ashley played by Ashley Lawrence. Um, she she's she's fine in the role. I think it was her first ever movie, and I think she yeah, was only for, about 19 for being an or introductory
1: role. I I think she did. Mm, she mm. did
0: fine. And um, oh, and actually, that's something I didn't mention. larry's played by Andrew Robinson, who's probably most famous for being Scorpio in Dirty Harry.
1: <laughs> wow yeah that, that yeah. is interesting i didn't realize that
0: yeah well they're, they're quite different roles obviously <laughs> yeah but, uh, yeah i, I, I to, uh, no sorry you go you go
1: oh i was just gonna say one thing i noticed about larry this time around that uh was not always apparent to me when i've seen it other times is kind of what i mean it is it is apparent that he is kind of a boring husband to to Julia. She's obviously not uh, overly excited by him, but you you see little tiny quirks of of his that show kind of really what uh, like a, a stuffy kind of person he is. And, and one thing that really stood out to me this viewing was he keeps dusting the top of the banister. Like he keeps, every time he walks by it, he like wipes the top of it. Almost like a nervous quirk. Like he's so worried about everything being in place. And and that doesn't come across many other ways, but I did think that that little dusting of the banister was a, a nice touch to show, you know, what a, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but... He's, he's fussy, for sure. Yeah, and like, yeah, exactly. And, he, and, he, and he's
0: and, and, it, and it's certainly not like, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not done in a way that's meant to be campy or, or anything like that. It's just like he, he's obsessed with the... I think you could take from that that he's obsessed with so many little details that he doesn't see all the genuinely big stuff going on around him.
1: Sure, sure.
0: Because, mm, like, he doesn't tweak that like, he can, he noticed that the post is dusty, but he doesn't notice that his wife's obviously not in love with him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or, or like, another thing, and I have noticed this one before, but, uh, you know, when they're moving the bed up the stairs, and one of the movers asks for a beer, and Julia says it's uh, in the fridge, and he seems to be very, very upset that she would not have offered to go get that beer for his friend, you know? Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> and... And right. it's kind of the
1: same thing he's, with the with the dinner, you the know.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Which I I think it's an odd time to request a beer, but I I get what they were going for there. But uh but it was the same thing for dinner when she wants to excuse herself. Like he's very visibly upset by that because you know, he's wanting the evening and the entertaining to go a very certain way uh with his friends, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and of course like this this raises larger questions like why did these two get together in the first place and so on and so forth. But you know, like, yeah. for the, for, the, for the purposes of the movie it it works and certainly um I think we've all met couples like this. Um you like uh like not to say that we've all met couples where One partner is secretly committing murders to resurrect their dead lover. Um, But more that, uh, you know, you've definitely, I've definitely met couples where I'm just like, how, what, what got you two together? Like, because obviously (laughs) it's not there now, you know? (laughs) Right, right. Um, So. uh, after the dinner party, yeah, Julia goes up to bed, Works about with Frank, Kirsty almost discovers Frank, but doesn't, and, and like, the, you know, Kirsty and, and um, Julia very obviously don't get on either, you know. Um, so, next morning, Frank's like, hey, uh, I'm a skinless corpse, I need some blood, can you go and get me some so that I can get my skin back? So... Julia goes up picking out men and she's very uncomfortable with this initially because um, she takes them back and then then murders them so that Frank can drain their blood. And these scenes I actually found quite, like, and th- this is an odd thing to say where, like, a s- literal skinless man is walking around on screen for half of it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> um, the, the, yeah. These scenes I found some of the most difficult because, like, so many of the other deaths in it are so over the top and implausible and and you know like that they work on screen but they couldn't happen in real life like um the the big one at the end that we'll get to um whereas these ones are kind of like you know, she hits the guy in the head with the hammer, hoping he'll die, and he doesn't. He's just like, ah, what are you doing? You know, and then, um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, very uncomfortable.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I noticed, too, this time around, that each of them doesn't have much dialogue, but the dialogue that they have uh, reveals just a little bit about them as a character and humanizes them just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the first guy finds it weird that they're, you know, there's no bed for them to have sex in, uh, you know, he's, and I, he's, I can't remember. He's, he's a pig, though. Like, you know, right, when, right. when they get there and he's sort of saying,
0: you haven't changed your mind, have you? You know, like
1: yeah. The, yeah the... <laughs> and and the second guy, you know, he's worried. He says he he really needs to be secretive. He's worried about, you know, being caught or being seen. Uh, you know, and the third guy, which to me is is one of the most disturbing, is is just this very kind of pathetic character that uh, you know, he he stops her halfway up the stairs just to say, I I'm he says something like, I'm alone a lot, or something yeah, very sad, where yeah, he's it's just it's, like, I'm not. I'm not used to companionship, basically.
0: Yeah, it's something that's quite cliched, but works in the context of the scene. I'm I'm, I'm a very lonely man.
1: Yeah, oh (laughs) yeah, that's what he says. Like, just out of nowhere, just stops her halfway up the stairs to tell her he's a lonely man, which I would imagine is probably in the real world, a very big turnoff to say in the middle yeah. of, of that context. But um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't but then be he's like also very, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But he's also very tormented once he get up there. Cause it seems like he also it, is one that is really like trying to fight for survival for a minute and mm. it's taking them a while to just do the job, you know, and it's oh. it a very uncomfortable thing.
0: Yeah. So Kirsty walks in on the last of these murders happening and, and he's, yeah, he's definitely put up more of a fight than the other two. Though, though it's implied there's more than just these three, I think. That that was kind of what I took away from it. Okay. Um, th- though, yeah, they, they only show three. But um by the end of it, Julie is super comfortable doing this and enjoying it even. And they sort of show that by having her watching the boxing match with, with Larry and getting really excited about it. And she, she's yeah. all super keen. um anyway then kirsty discovers this she uh is not pleased to see skinless uncle frank who she thought was dead or in jail or something (laughs) um she takes the puzzle box runs away with it and um then wakes up uh, now i'm skipping over a few things but, but this is you know um she wakes up in hospital and then starts playing with the puzzle box herself uh at which point uh she has that weird encounter with the the monster that's called the engineer. Um and, and I would say this is maybe the point in the movie where Kirsty switches to being the protagonist rather than um Julio who's kind of been the protagonist up to this point. Would you would you agree?
1: Yeah, yeah, I would. Hmm
0: so um yeah the engineer shows up chases her down a mysterious corridor then the other kind of Cenobite show up like Pinhead and um it's Pinhead the Chatterer um female Cenobite though some people call her Deep Throat um because her, her throat is pulled open and uh Butterball so yeah and they're sort of saying, well, you opened the box, so we're here to torture and kill you too. (laughs) Um, And she says, well, no, like, uh, you know, I can lead you back to Frank, who's escaped from you. So they make a kind of, I guess, Faustian deal, uh, at which point she goes back to the house, discovers that Frank's killed her dad, um, then Frank accidentally kills Julia, and then the Cenobites show up again, and um, that, that's kind of where the film's sort of big climax and special effects moments are in a lot of ways, and they eventually claim Frank back, rip him apart with chains, and uh, then Kirsty kind of escapes unscathed at which point a giant skeleton dragon shows up and claims the box back.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which um, is quite something. Like I can only imagine how much work that, like that dragon is in it for like less than two seconds. (laughs) I can only imagine how much of work it must have been to create. To
1: to me in an otherwise very good movie, it's, it's one of the most disappointing kind of special effects. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Um, and I know that, I, you know, I was reading that they had a, a big problem with special effects in the film, like not having the money for them, and mm. they were kind of having to do a lot of them by hand. But to me, it's like, I would have almost, if I was going to put that dragon on screen the way that they did, I would almost ride around it in some way and just scrap that whole thing, you know, yeah. come up with some other ending for that, because it is... Just disappointing is the best best way I can I can put it.
0: I, I do kind of like how it looks, but then the way it moves is, is crappy. Like, and it's also very. Um... It doesn't fit within the aesthetic they've established either, um, right. you know, because you've got all these kind of like skinless people and people with all these horrible like mutilations and things like that, and then all of a sudden there's this thing that would have looked amazing in a Ray Harryhausen movie, but <laughs> uh, is is obviously and 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 still you know still charming in its own way, but it, like does not remotely fit with the aesthetic they've established. So.
1: Sure. And and like you said, it's got very clunky puppetry that they're using to move it around. And then mm. you can only imply or infer that it flew away at the end because you don't see well, it. You you just see well, you it kind see, of jiggle around its, there.
0: You see from its POV it's it's flying right. away looking down on Kirsty and her boyfriend. Um yeah. So uh, I I don't know. I've done the best job of relaying the story there, but uh, it it's not a. It's a movie that's about as much mood as it is about story and and imagery. I think. Um, yeah. If you sit down and try and break the story down, there's it's got a chair of loopholes as horror films often do. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> sure. I th- I think one of the big takeaways, like I th- I think it's very hard for us as as kind of adults in 2020. Late twenty twenty as we record this. You might be hearing this in twenty twenty one. to sort of fully get your head around how sort of shocking some of this imagery might be. And uh, I, I guess that sort of ties into the themes, so uh you know, which we'll talk about now. Like so obviously Hellraiser is not the goriest movie ever made. It's not the most shocking movie ever made. It's not any of those things, so so don't please don't take away that I'm saying that. But if you consider something That's maybe more overtly horrible, like um, Cannibal Holocaust, for example, or or even, you know, if we want to go horrible in a different kind of way, something like Salo, like those were not films that were shown by and large in mainstream cinemas, those were shown in the art house places and things like that, whereas hellraiser ended up with a mass release sort of akin to something like a friday the 13th or maybe something like a saw movie would get to to give a more contemporary example and it's it's genuinely gross stuff and there's a lot of um imagery that's taken from like piercing communities and uh you know bdsm the bdsm scene and Sort of very um, sort of sort of uh, taken out of the gay leather scene and that and that kind of thing, but what what were your kind of thoughts around some of that Adam I guess
1: well yeah i, I think that's uh, that's great I think the example you made about it not it being more of a mainstream movie in terms of its release compared to uh maybe other more graphic or disturbing horror movies is it, that's a really good point um. Because, yeah, it... Sorry if my computer's (laughs) making me... No, 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 it's fine, I can't. It's it's fine, yeah. Uh, Anyway, I I think all of that's a really good point because, you know, again, I I keep going back to my own perspective with the the movie because I had a pretty limited horror, you know, uh, exposure growing up. So when you do finally see a movie like this, it is is very shocking. There's not... um, the sort of nods to to you know bondage and piercing and, and things like that that there are in in this film, and you know whereas other horror movies even if you see somebody stabbed, uh, you know it's going to show that for just a very very split second. Whereas mm. in this movie, you've got people with open wounds being held open, mm. uh, you know with with very. Various metal appendages and things like that well, uh, even,
0: even like pinhead's chest, how like he he's got his chest kind of partially flayed mm-hmm. and then the strips of skin are sort of weaved back into his actual costume, which is. Not necessarily something you notice at first glance, but then you look at it again, you're like, how is this guy walking around? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> right,
1: right. And, yeah. you know, I while some of those things now may not hold up to our modern standards of what looks real on screen, uh, you know, seeing that back the first time in 1987, I, I'm sure was, was a very different experience, so.
0: Yeah, and I mean, look, I will say too now... um, And we'll get to where he got some of that imagery in a second. While we're talking about the themes, we're going to segue into... um Musical themes, as well too, and then segue back out <laughs> um, but b d s m imagery and and piercing and stuff like that it it's it 's not super outrageous these days I mean like i 'm not sort of saying I would sit down with my mum and show and flick through a piercing magazine with her you know uh, <laughs> but right. um it 's also you can see it online very easily, and there 's a much more mainstream acceptance of some of these things, and that 's changed within my lifetime, like even when I was a little kid. Uh, tattoos are a good example, like, tattoos are very commonplace now, like, um, facial piercings are very common now, in, in, in a way that they just weren't even when I was a, a little kid, you know, um, and, and by and large, I think that's a good thing, too, uh, I want to say, like, you know, but, um, you know, in 1987, if something was going to creep out the normies, you know, this, this, this was going to be something to do it, I think, like.
1: Yeah. So oh absolutely.
0: Some of that imagery that he draws on now as as we mentioned like um you know, I don't know about all of um Clive's individual proclivities or anything like that. Um so I don't I don't want to speculate on that because I think that's kind of outside the scope of of what we what we do and I don't want to infer about other people's um uh preferences or anything like that. But he was friends with a lot of legitimate weirdos um and and uh, some of them are, two of them two or three of them who are very influential with the band Coil. So I am not super familiar with Coil um, in terms of having listened to their music. I've listened to a couple of their albums. Um, I, I would suggest if you want a better overview, you should listen to that Evil Eye episode that I mentioned earlier because they're both mm-hmm. huge Coil fans. Um, I've listened to a couple of albums, and I think that to some degree, having come to them in my mid-30s, they are perhaps going to be more in the category of things that I get why they're important and appreciate, as opposed to in, enjoy listening to so much myself. But but Coil are very much uh, the definition of a cult act. So um, they're kind of I guess if you want to describe their sound, we'll just go with experimental and dark ambient. That's that's not really broad enough. But but I'm not enough of an expert on that kind of sound to to talk about it in more detail. They were also they kind of grew out of the 70s industrial scene in England. They they were formed by an ex member of Throbbing Gristle and uh, people who'd been associated with the the, Templars with um. Uh, ...Psychic TV, which was sort of the successor band, Throwing Gristle, um, and all, all of these acts were, and, and then they became friends with a lot of the the groups who would sort of be very influential in the neo-folk scene, so the, I believe they are very good friends with people like Current 93... Uh, I think there were some connections with Death and June before he became known as a big racist guy um <laughs> but, but, but that's that's kind of another story um, so but all of these groups were very deliberately transgressive in their art they're musicians but they're also artists they're also designers um they're also occultists um like uh coyle's first release was deliberately a um an album release to design to be to do with ritual magic, for male sexual energy. Um, and all of these people, although not not all of them, were, were gay as well, and, and Coyle were. So um, the two key members were John Balance and Peter, Peter Christopherson. Um, so they kind of uh, ended up becoming friends with Clive Barker through another guy who was in the band at the time called Stephen thrower who worked at a comic store in London uh, and had become friends with Clive through that and and they all apparently used to spend a lot of time hanging out and looking at piercing magazines <laughs> together uh, as as well as doing other sort of things like uh, and and coyle's albums are very much uh, the, the what I've heard and bits and pieces are, you know they definitely touch on this stuff like you know one one of their songs is called for example the anal staircase and and the definitely that deliberate drawing on gay imagery to to be shocking and and to deliberately offend people they knew would be offended that kind of thing so sure um so apparently, one is Stephen Thrower. There's a good YouTube um, documentary with him, and Stephen Thrower kind of talks about how the big image that stood out to Clive was this um, apparently like a bifurcated penis. So, uh, someone had, I, I haven't seen the photo myself. I'm, I'm not super sure I want to, but right. what I understand about it is you kind of slice the underside uh, and uh, sort of uh, have various piercings and so on and, and various stretches put into kind of ha- have it held apart in two separate parts, um, which is not something of great interest to me to, to do. But um, I think it's if you look at the designs in Hellraiser and the designs of the Cenobites, you can definitely see where some of that filtered through, albeit in somewhat more diluted form than, than literally having a bifurcated penis on screen. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so Coyle were genuine weirdos. Both of the two guys, uh, Peter Christopherson and John Balancer, both subsequently died. But um, they were, for a time, commissioned to do the soundtrack for Hellraiser, um, some of which I sent over to Adam as we were prepping for this episode. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting stuff. They never recorded a full soundtrack, that, or a score, I should say. Uh, With the money concerns you mentioned earlier, um, in terms of pulling the film together and finishing it, Adam. So apparently one thing that kind of happened was the movie was getting near completion. Coil were working on some soundtrack stuff. I think they ended up finishing three or four tracks. And then um, uh, the studio kind of stepped in and said, well, look, we can see that this is going to be a hit, but we need to tweak it. We'll give you some extra money to finish the special effects shot, shots and so on. Uh, but we want you to bring in uh, Christopher Young to do the the score instead. And I think that um, Clive, uh, you know, unfortunately was put between a rock and a hard place and kind of made the decision, well, I can have Coyle do the soundtrack or I can have Christopher Young do it and uh you know went went with the the you know went with that option and and christopher young's score was great i really i really genuinely love it but it is interesting to imagine an alternative world where we ended up with coils weirdo kind of dark ambient electronic score as, as well too um, but
1: honestly the the examples that you had sent me were very very strong especially for this type of movie like i uh and i i don't have a problem with the the existing score as it is but you know listening to that i i was like you know this would have been really really effective in this movie too so you know i guess
0: well, I wonder to a degree, too, if that's sort of the eyes looking at it through now, right? So,
1: yeah.
0: I, I think that in 2020, like, like as I mentioned, both the two key members of COIL have since passed away. John Balance died in 2004 and Peter's Christopherson died in 2010. But they have been hugely, hugely influential. And um, the biggest act that they've probably been an influence on is um, Nine Inch Nails, Um and they did a lot of remixes for them. I think they might have even done the remix of Closer that's used in the opening credits of Seven. Um, so we're we're more familiar now, like as adults in this era. Um, and like I was two years old when Hellraiser came out. You know, <laughs> I was I wasn't right. then, right? <laughs> um, but I think like we we're accustomed to this idea of having this electronic score and like oh there's this weird electronic ambient act like yeah why wouldn't we have them do the soundtrack in a, in a way that I think was probably a much tougher sell back in um, back in 1987 maybe sure sure. Hmm. hmm. But yeah, they're they're definitely they're definitely interesting as individuals and as a band. So if if you want to learn more about them, definitely listen to that Evil Eye episode. But I I think from there we'll we'll kind of segue back into some of the other themes
1: of the the film.
0: So was, was there anything? What what other stuff kind of jumped out at you?
1: Well, there was the definitely the the religious imagery right off the bat, mm, mm. which came across in another a number of ways. I mean, obviously when they get to the house. Uh, they are, um, you know, surrounded by, I, I would assume they're, uh, you know, statues of St. Mary and, you know, maybe even some of Jesus Christ, mm. uh, you know, all over the place, which is interesting because, you know, Frank certainly doesn't seem like the type that was <laughs> worshiping a, a Christian God. By yeah, any I, means, I don't think
0: know. Frank was a friend of
1: the, the good Lord Jesus, you know, based on <laughs> right, some of his right. other actions. <laughs> um... But it was – so I, I think it just spoke to mostly just kind of the corruption uh, of the kind of standard uh, Judeo-Christian thinking, you know. And and they say that a lot of – you know, I, I'm thinking of like demon possession movies and, and things like that. They talk about how there's always that uh, kind of um, – you know, that, that specific – Uh, kind of attack on Christian imagery by mimicking it, you know, and and so that was something that kind of stood out to me. I also, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, but whenever it's, it's showing the flashback of the first time that Julia and Frank meet... He introduces himself as brother Frank, which is obviously, oh, you know if, yes, yeah. from from I'm a literal Frank. perspective. Brother yeah. Frank, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh you know, from, from a literal point of view, he's talking about how he's Larry's brother. But I, I there is also that nod to kind of the religious prefix that is very common in Christianity to call uh, you know, some some clergy, at least in you know, the Protestant religions, I'm most familiar with Mm -hmm. Uh, you know they they refer to their clergy or their pastors as as brother you know whatever his last name is um you know and and again i don't know if that was a was intentional or not uh but it it was you know it did stand out to me as being another possible nod to him kind of being this uh, kind of religious sort of uh figure you know (laughs)
0: Yeah, and and Barker is is sort of interesting on that front because he he has previously he ended up on like real time with Bill Maher back in like two thousand three or something like that. And uh, <laughs> wow. guess who guess who he was on with? Like, it, it's, oh man! Uh, uh, actually, that doesn't really narrow it down. I'll just tell you, he was on there with Ann Coulter. Um, Ugh. and, uh, she, of course, sort of ripped into him for being, you know, this awful person who puts out this filth and this, you, you know, like all the, all the stuff that Ann Coulter would say if she met either of us, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and he sort of said, well, but I am a Christian. And, and so I, I don't think he would identify as such these days and has sort of made statements separate from that in the years since, but I think he, the impression I would get maybe just based on when he was born and where he grew up is maybe he's at least familiar. He's certainly familiar with the Bible based on some of his written works, but, um, He he might have some... I think he has some sort of sympathy to to it at some level, but I don't think we're going to see him, like, you know, showing up on Joel Osteen's... um, (laughs) You know, this week, guest speaker at Joel Osteen's Church, Clyde Barker, like, you know... (laughs) Right, right. I think there's that struggle, the reconciliation between um, a uh, Christian... Maybe... maybe, how How about I won't tie it down that specifically? Maybe a tie between... The difficulty of being a gay man during the sort of height of the AIDS crisis and um, perhaps having religious impulses, but being, by and large,
1: rejected by the mainline religions. Mm. Sure, sure. And, you know, we also have to assume, you know, like anything... simply portraying something on screen is not always an endorsement of that particular thing. Now I, I, realize that he had very specific, uh, aesthetic and, and, you know, interest and everything like that. And I'm not saying they weren't present in the movie, but you can't assume, you know, <laughs> that everything a person puts on screen or in a book, um, is necessarily directly tied to their own personal beliefs, you know?
0: no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, uh, I mean, like, an example of of that might be, like, uh, you know, like, I don't really think that Kane Hodder thinks it's a good idea to wear a hockey mask and murder teenagers, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. But he's certainly done it a lot on screen, you know? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I I think that this is... um, Sometimes uh, I don't want to point fingers at anyone specifically, but um, my frustration with sometimes with modern critiques is that there is sometimes an assumption that um, uh, depiction equals approval, right? And and, right. and that's that's very much not the case. Like, do I think it can be telling if you see uh, directors or writers or actors or someone consistently doing similar things that could be construed in maybe some negative ways. Um, potentially, yes, uh, that, that could be a big problem. <laughs> um, right. But, you know, I don't think in and of itself, like depiction of uh, a thing equates to approval of that thing, right? So
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I think that's what, especially in the modern age of social media and everything, we see this happen time and time again, where uh, something will come out about a movie long before the movie even comes out and people will be upset um but that something is going to be depicted in a movie without even getting any sort of a, of the context or uh you know any of the voice behind it uh you know to give it give it more depth and explanation you know they just they just automatically jump to the worst case scenario and in some cases that might be right you know there there may be some cases where it's not justified and it is problematic, but you know, until until you let that fully kind of flesh itself out—no uh, pun intended—you uh, y- know that you can't really speak with any sort of authority on on the outrage. You know,
0: yeah, I, I tend to agree, and you know, I look for the most part. I don't really like. I, I don't ever want to be one of these like um, uh, people who like. Talks about oh the youth, you know, always getting upset and you know the the libs and things. You know, sure, I, sure, I definitely, yeah. I definitely don't want to be like that because I'm very sympathetic to why people do get upset about certain things and certain imagery and certain tropes in films, and I think that it's good to be able to engage with that criticism and deconstruct it. Some, it's not always valid, but but it's good to be aware that it's out there, right? Um, sure,
1: yeah. And, and I and I guess that's my point is that it's not it's not that they're wrong necessarily. i I guess it's more of just a lack of data <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean no, It's no, just no, they, I, they don't have all the information to to say one way or another
0: absolutely I agree, and I also think that the this, the fallacy we sometimes see and, and um certain forms of social media are, are particularly bad for it is like I find this personally distasteful, therefore no one should ever be allowed to see it kind of thing. Um, yeah, which 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 is an exaggerated thing. Like it's very, it's actually very rare you see someone espousing that, you know, out and out. But I have seen people, unironically advocate for stuff that would essentially be the return of the Hayes Code. Like I remember seeing one person say. It's okay to show bad behavior in films as long as you show the person getting punished or that you explicitly say it's wrong. And I was like, I this is literally the Hayes Code. Like, I don't, I don't really <laughs> right, like. Right. You, you know that the Hayes Code caused its own set of problems, right? Don't you? Like, but, but that that's I think maybe a, a, a sign of like someone who's, um, you know, I don't, I certainly don't even remember who said it. Like, and I wouldn't name them even if I did because I don't want to dunk on them for. You know, like we're all uninformed about something at one point or another. So, like, you know, they they had a slightly bad take on Twitter. That's okay. Like, I've had some too. So, you know, yeah, yeah.
1: So, would you permit me a couple minutes to maybe ask a question about an unrelated movie that was in the news recently? And I have I've know nothing about the movie except what I read once it appeared in headlines. But it, it's kind of <laughs> no no but maybe something in that same vein sure. um but basically it's kind of the the converse of this like when when is it too far to show bad behavior or what what bad behavior is crossing the line right. and the the well, film i'm talking about well, specifically was is a serbian film
0: Have you heard oh of that? Uh, I've, I've heard about a serbian film and you know what let's let's just pause there for a quick break because i need another <laughs> okay, beer okay. and then we'll come back and we'll talk about a serbian film hey <laughs> yep Pine Transmissions, where we're here talking about Hellraiser with Adam Timish of Shelf Life, a collector's podcast. And uh, we left on a bit of a cliffhanger there. Adam was wanting to know what I thought about a Serbian film, which I haven't actually seen, but I'm keen to hear his take on, and then then possibly share a few of my own thoughts after hearing his take.
1: Yeah, so I, I basically, like I said, I I have... I don't know anything about a Serbian film, other than I saw that there's an upcoming, un, like, uncut release of this film and that seemed to be going mm. around horror twitter for you know a news cycle or whatever uh so i started reading about it just because i like i said i had no no not no prior knowledge of it
0: and it, not not on the work computer i hope <laughs> no no certainly not um
1: <laughs> and and of course what i found was that you know apparently it depicts very graphic uh pedophilia uh necrophilia um among other things and you know i kind of read through the plot just sounded like a a just absolutely horrific film and of course i don't know how all of this is depicted on screen um you know so i i can't speak to that extent of it but um you know it certainly sounded like something i would never be interested in watching and i can say that comfortably it's just not not the type of horror movie i go for um but at at the same time it did make me wonder you know from an ethical perspective perspective kind of like what we were saying before uh y- you know depiction doesn't necessarily mean um endorsement uh you know and it you don't always have to say that um bad behavior needs to be followed by punishment or that there needs to be some sort of recourse uh, on this sort of thing but in a case like this where obviously it has been banned in several countries um
0: it's banned over here yeah
1: uh, is is there a step is there a step too far
0: so i'm gonna speak in very general terms here because not having seen it myself i I don't want to like um i remember when it came out and i remember reading an interview with the director when it came out and to be honest it, it didn't like everyone was like wow serbian films really shocking and um Never really did the article exactly explain why. And I'm like, oh, it must be really violent. Well, I've seen some pretty violent films, so that's okay. And then uh, I sort of forgot about it because I sort of been refused. So um, here, we, here we're here we going to talk a little bit about censorship in Australia, right? Okay. So the distinction between... Um, Australia and America, in terms of censorship, is that when a movie comes out here, it needs to be submitted to a classifications board, right? Which is populated by people who are, are not, I, I don't think their names are usually available to the public, but they're not necessarily like young people who are up with the times and what's going on. Um, and films don't get outright banned, they get quote unquote refused classification, which means that they can't be, uh, owning a personal copy is not illegal. Provided it didn't contain any other material that would otherwise be illegal, for example, child pornography. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's that's very much illegal as as it should be, right? You know. um, So, uh, but if it's just a horror, because there's a lot of famous horror films that are still technically quote unquote banned over here, and part of that is not is because they refused classification back in 1970 something and. In the releases that have come out since Australia is such a small market, no one's bothered to resubmit it for classification over here because the cost of submitting it for classification would probably outweigh the, um, the money you would make back over releasing it on DVD, gotcha. right? Um. Yeah. So, so, so that led to some interesting quirks Like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 2 I only got unbanned over here in like 2006 or something like that. <laughs> but of course, like there were bootlegs, and you, you know, the the big one I remember was Cannibal Holocaust. Got unbanned around the same time, like 2006, 2007, and um, all of a sudden you could buy it for the first time. But again, bootlegs have been doing the rounds and this, that, and the other. And then when you watch it, you kind of go, Yeah, I see why the ratings board didn't like it in 1980 something, but. Like, like you know, it's it's not something I would ban. Like it's uh, solo was another one. I don't I don't think that was actually unbanned over here until about or, or given proper classification until 2010. And that one has been kind of sold over here with the prerogative that it, the DVDs contain a mini documentary, kind of talking about some of the the themes to do with fascism and and, and things like that within it. Um, because if you're not aware of some of that context, it's very easy to look at it and be like, "This is just a bunch of depraved stuff happening on screen." Right, right. Like, you know, yeah. So, so, which it, which is not to trivialize it. Like, I. So my own take with these things tends to be that. Um, I don't know what the line is. Definitely, I understand why people understand why people find certain elements of a Serbian film very distasteful. Having gone and read a pot summary and so on and so forth, um, having not seen it specifically, uh, I don't can't comment on the imagery used. Um, uh, readers, feel free to let me know what you think. Um, but I do remember reading an interview with the director when it very first came out, and he was sort of very much explicitly talking about, this film is about how much life fucks you over in this country, it fucks you until you're dead, and then it keeps fucking you after you're, after you're dead, essentially, so... Um, they certainly tend to veer on the side of like this film is metaphor and it's conveying important points in the same way that Say Sara was about uh, you know how fascism destroys everyone. Sure. Um, whether a Serbian film has the artistry to to kind of back that up and and that's not just kind of a cover to try and make sure it doesn't get banned in a bunch of countries. <laughs> right. Um, I honestly I honestly don't. know. I wouldn't know without seeing it. But have I been in a rush to watch it myself? No um and personally I uh, that if i was a filmmaker or writing a film i can definitely think of acts that i wouldn't want to depict myself on screen so um some of which we touched on er- earlier yeah you know, so. well
1: and that's why i thought it was a relevant topic uh you know because i mm. I, I feel like well hellraiser doesn't obviously you know uh show any anything like that I I feel like you know you mentioned Ann Coulter there are people that were probably very upset by the imagery in Hellraiser uh you know and, and... well Hellra- Hellraiser does touch on
0: incest and you can imply a pedophilia from that as well yeah, too that's though, true though it's never it's never explicit it's never explicit like I want to be very clear about that like um but, yeah, and I can't imagine Ann Cole watching it and seeing you It was a great time
1: <laughs> well, I would <laughs> certainly but... welcome to hear we you know we can shelve the uh Serbian film discussion for now, but I would certainly love to hear <laughs> at some point if someone does uh want to come in and defend the film. My question is one of ignorance, not of judgment, so i I would certainly welcome mm, to hear cool. a you know a defense of of that movie so.
0: That, that's definitely it. Like I, I don't feel like I can make the call on that. Like if you literally outline the subject matter, yes, of course I find it disgusting and distasteful. <laughs> Do I really want to watch a film about that? No, not really. Um, but without having seen the film, I can't comment on it either because there are other films that you could break down in a similarly base way. Like Doubt with Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and Meryl Streep is a great film. Um, if I'm to literally relay what its themes are about, well, it's about pedophilia. It's it's about um, abuse use of power it's about this it's about that and there would be a certain brand of person who would just hear a laundry list like that and say well doubt should be banned you know so uh, I, I don't want to um uh you, you know, it's I, I think context is always important.
1: Sure. And yeah. I mean even the same could be said for uh Nightmare on Elm Street, where in the films they typically only refer to him as a, a child murderer. Except in the remake, I think they're yes. they're more explicit. But <laughs> yeah, and, uh they ref, you know, in the main series. Yes, yeah, the remake did itself uh, no face. <laughs> right, right, exactly. On on any front. No, either. no. <laughs> but I, I think the the remake was more explicit about what Crimes were happening there, but uh, in the original series, yeah, they never explicitly stated, but there's certainly the implication, uh, you know, mm. of, of the crimes of Freddy Krueger. So, you know, like you said, if you if you wanted to break that down and explicate that in a very specific way, uh, you know, it probably would make the film seem a lot, a lot worse. Than- mm, definitely.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. But but uh, I do have friends who've seen a Serbian film. They do say it's pretty rough going. So um yeah, I like d- yeah, definitely not in a rush to watch Yeah, that no. Movie.
1: I I still I let me be clear. I still have no interest in watching that movie, but you know, if somebody <laughs> wants to to tell me about it, I'll I'll listen, I guess, but
0: well, just just moving back to the um the it ties back into the censorship point to some degree. Um the you you do end up with weird quirks over here right so we we have a station over here called um uh SBS which stands for special broadcasting service uh it's government run and and typically over here it shows a lot of the um uh it it's it's very much geared at, at catering to um minority groups in australia and 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 uh, i mean in the sense that like it would play the italian news every night or or you know you would go on there to watch um, um soccer because soccer wasn't at the time you know like it had a big grassroots following, but it didn't have like national organization that kind of thing uh but it was obviously very popular with like the the european and mediterranean um immigrant communities um or, or you might have shows on there about how to learn japanese and that kind of thing and increasingly over the last few years there's been a lot of um say lgbtqi plus um type content on there too so so i wouldn't say it's like uh a perfect service or anything like that but but definitely as a child who grew up in a pretty white area it was quite a window to the world and and one i was very grateful for so um they also have a channel on pay tv over here cable for our american listeners called sbs world movies um, and SBS was sort of famous for playing a lot of foreign films back in the day, so... Um, you know, I, I haven't seen a manual specifically, but if if a channel was going to play a manual, it would be SBS, you know? Right, <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah, and they, they played a lot of, like, you know, erotic noir films, and they, they played a, they played other stuff too, like I remember watching a lot of Jackie Chan films and Bruce Lee films on there, for example, you know, so the, it was very much a broad palette of, of stuff that they'd play. Now, there's... Have you heard of Necromantic at all?
1: Uh, As a specific title?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a okay. Well, it's it's a German film from the from the late eighties, if memory serves. Now that's banned from sale in Australia. If if I wanted to import a copy from England, it would be the easiest thing in the world to do. And like you know, like personal ownership of these things. It's fine, like the problems tend to come in when like retailers are selling it or theatres are screening it, but the, I would say that the rules around it tend to be pretty lax these days. Uh, yeah. uh, but f- because a different classification board handles what's aired on TV versus what's sold in stores, Necromantic has aired on Australian TV <laughs> d- despite never having been available for sale over here so y- you do run into odd quirks like that as well too where obviously someone feels it's okay to play this on SPS World Movies in spite of being a film that's literally about necrophilia right. um, but apparently we're not allowed to own like the latest Blu-ray copy of it so you know it's 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 odd yeah it's, it's there's quirks like that that creep in every now and then hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't yeah. know I, so it... necromantic <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and and that and, but but again that's another one like i haven't seen it myself but i do know it includes stuff like animal cruelty and things like yeah that. so sure. you know it's yeah um and and there's other things too like fa- the first faces of death film is available over here but none of the others are you know I, it's i don't i don't fully understand the logic for it i think it has a lot to do with which government's in power at a given time and and who's kind of overseeing what's being released over here so you know the, the I, I don't know if this answers any of your questions <laughs> but uh, I i thought it was a kind of the interesting side note
1: no it is it is interesting because I'm, i mean as i'm sure you were aware you know it's obviously on in the states it's uh you know we're probably overexposed and i don't i don't say that in like a conservative you know there's too much trash on tv sort of way i i mean more that we're just you know basically have unlimited access to pretty much anything which you know is
0: watch all the necromantic you want right right (laughs) uh is you know
1: i guess a good thing but um you know, we certainly don't have to deal with some of those hurdles and bureaucracy and, and things like that of of a kind of an uh, a my, inconsistent review board, I guess, is what I'm trying to get. At. Yeah, my, my,
0: my observation with America, and, and please correct me if you feel I'm way off about this, is that economics sense, it, 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 censorship tends to be more economic. Oh, absolutely. So you know you have these films that are made and they're like oh well we deliberately are making this to get a pg-13 movie so we can we can say fuck twice right uh and if we know that we do that if we know we know if we have three fucks then it won't get pg-13 unless we cut one out right um and then conversely you have stuff like um the censored albums and walmart and that kind of thing we don't do any of that so the um yeah, it's, it seems to be more like, it, well, you can make your movie as gruesome as you want, but the cinema chains won't show it, and Walmart
1: won't stock the DVD kind
0: of thing. But, but would you say that's fair? Yeah, or no, I,
1: absolutely. I... And uh, what it results in, yeah, is is artists that want to have their movies shown, you know, will will certainly pull back the reins where they, they need to. Uh, but then you have some artists like Lars von Trier who will just – you know make his movie the way he wants to make it and seemingly does not care if he gets an NC17 movie and i and i think he's got enough of a following that uh you know he's probably not making millions of dollars off of his movies um or at least not hundreds of millions of dollars but uh you know he i i'm sure he's getting his art out there the way he wants and you know i i think again with his uh cult status that you know he probably makes makes enough money off of it to make them viable so well th-
0: this is where i think and to circle back to, to hellraiser this is where i think clive barker has sometimes run into problems um you, you know and how how you how listeners feel about this your mileage will vary but i think that clive barker is in that interesting position of he sells a lot but he doesn't sell stephen king numbers he he has big movies but they don't do like um marvel money you know um but he's also obviously a much bigger name than someone like Lars von trier so when you when you bring on last which is not to disparage Lars von trier and his, his own career and things like that but more that if a studio picks up Lars von trier's movie they know what they're in for to some degree right. and and i would imagine they can probably forecast pretty accurately what they're going to make back because everyone's got to have their criterion copy of antichrist or something like that sure, right? sure so, um, you, you can factor those in. Um, with Kyle Barker, I think it's more inconsistent in that um, if he went kind of uh, hog out and did sort of the, the movie he might in a, in his fever dreams want to make, um, people are going to see Kaid Barker on that and assume it's going to be a certain kind of movie. And, and I'm not talking about everyone. I'm talking about your average cinema goer here sure. who's not necessarily familiar with other stuff, like that's the a Barker movie could make hundreds of millions of dollars if it if it's in the right hands and the right production team but it could also be a real bomb um and you like something like Mord of Illusions which didn't make a ton of money for example but I think was kind of if you go and watch it now like I think over here it went straight to VHS but if you watch it they put a lot of money into it like Mm -hmm. the the results were mixed for sure and not every movie is going to be a hit but um you know, I think they were hoping it would be sort of like his next Hellraiser, or his next Candyman. Not to say Clive was hoping that necessarily, but I'm sure the studio was. And so he's kind of you can't give him a Lars von Trier budget, um, <laughs> right, right. Um, whereas if you give Lars von Trier five dollars, he'll he'll turn that into a movie that will make several hundred thousand. You know, if you if you give Clive Barker. Twenty million dollars, he might come back with a movie that makes fifteen million, you know, right. like or or it might make hundreds of millions, you know. It's 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 that tough kind of place to be in, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I I can definitely definitely see that, and that's you know, it's it's a very fine line to try and and walk on there because a lot of times I will watch horror movies and I will think, man, if anybody could just trust these filmmakers with a little bit more money with just a little bit more money they could have done something really really great with this and uh, it really bothers me when you can see the budgetary strings on on a film uh you know where you where you can see where something was really held back uh you know to negatively uh and and maybe something was lost because they didn't just get quite enough money at the at the same time I do also understand the economics of that. Like you, you don't want to just say, "Okay, here's twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million dollars for a movie that just doesn't have the the broad appeal that like an Avengers would, or something like that." You know, yes, no. uh, <laughs> and Clyde and... Barker
0: presents Captain Marvel, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh,
1: and then you know completely loses loses money. So it, you, you know, see, I, I'm sure it's see, not uh, easy to make those. See Kevin. Oh, sorry, Kevin.
0: We need to have. I'm just imagining him talking to Kevin Faige or something like that, and being like, <laughs> "You see, Kevin, Captain Marvel she she's got to have her no eyelids, and you know, her mouth must be sewn open at all.
1: You know? <laughs> but also, I, you know, you the mentioned skin should be back. <laughs> you also mentioned the innovation of the horror industry, though, and I and I think that is where a lot of charm goes is where or where a lot of charm comes from is when they do have to find ways to you know work within work creatively within these these tight constraints and i think it does lend itself to a lot of innovation and a lot of uh you know unique experiences that would be lost if they had a giant budget you know so uh, Mm -hmm. this is none of this is to say i've got the the answer to to balance all that out but uh you know it is it is a tough tough thing to try and figure that out i'm sure
0: Mm. Well, my I I think well because as someone who who works in um, to some degree a creative field and and has produced his own creative material and things like that, uh, I think a certain level of constraints are good. Uh, I think um, everyone sort of says like, oh, it'd be amazing if we could get this filmmaker that much money or this much money or this that or the other, but. I can't help but think back to when, and it's not a perfect comparison, it's not a universally applicable comparison, but I'm going to use it. Um, I can't help but think back to when I was about 10 years old and just getting into Star Wars and being like, imagine the movies they could make with today's special effects. <laughs> yeah. And of course we got the prequels, you know, <laughs> right. because you, you had George Lucas's unrestrained vision and it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, right. Yeah, no, that, um, I,
1: I think that's a great example.
0: Hmm. Which is not to say every filmmaker is George Lucas, more that like sometimes having everything, sometimes having total creative control is actually a bad thing. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's good to be willing to take notes from time to time, I think.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> um, oh, go ahead.
0: No, 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 you go, you go. would there any other sort of... I, I've got one big theme that I want to touch on. Sure, yeah, go is ahead. Is there anything else that... Yeah, okay. Um, so I think one thing that, and this, again, ties into Ann Coulter and to a degree with us discussing a Serbian film and things like that, is that... Horror films are often among those that really piss off um uh conservatives and, and, you know, um the religious right and things like that. And and uh, you know, they're often super concerned about the um the morals that are being portrayed and all all that, you know, because sometimes in a horror movie you might see a boob, like, you know, the, um like we do in Hellraiser. <laughs> right. Um yeah, I think think you see uh yeah, well we don't need to talk about that. That's that's me being silly. But um the yeah you, you but often horror movies have particularly slashes have really kind of conservative messaging in them and conservative social norms that they're reinforcing. So it, with something like Friday the 13th or like John Carpenter and he has said himself it was very unintentional, but he sort of set the template with the first Halloween, like Jamie Lee Curtis survives. And if you think back over it, she's the only girl who doesn't, you know, have sex, do drugs or act out towards her parents. Yeah, yeah. So, and she's the one who survives and, and John Carpenter has explicitly said in the years since that that's not what I intended. It was more, you know, more just coincidental, like, and, you know, the product of kind of making films with young actors and, you know, like, so uh, I don't think it was what he hoped for, but stuff like Friday the 13th, like, that's certainly, I didn't come away from watching, like, Friday the 13th 6th thinking, oh, geez, I need to... Need to vote for the the Australian equivalent of the Republican Party or anything <laughs> like that, but you know, they, yeah, but they do kind of reinforce those norms. Whereas I I think that Hellraiser to a degree has the kind of you know quote-unquote happy ending where kirstie and her boyfriend survive but i do think there's more going on there than than your average like friday the 13th in terms of subverting that a little bit
1: i i completely agree and i did have a note about it as well but uh, i'll let you kind of go Mm go into what you were gonna say first
0: yeah, I, I don't don't have huge thoughts around it. It was more like the one that spring... Th- th- this was one I read the other day. It was kind of talking about... And I don't know how much I agree with this, but I can see how they got to that place. They were sort of talking about the idea of, like, in most slasher films, sex is bad. You know, like, it, you, know, you watch a Friday the 13th or, or Nightmare on Elm Street movie, and you see some boobs, but, like, then that person's getting hacked up in a few minutes later for seeing those boobs you know mm, sure. <laughs> um, where whereas um, in Hellraiser they were sort of they were sort of suggesting that um, when Kirsty gets possession of the box that's sort of a symbol of her taking back control of her own sexuality and so on and, and using it as a positive force because once she's got the box like the monsters show up but she also uses the box to drive them away and so on and uh, I can kind of see the thought there because there is a lot of that like flower imagery and so on when the, um, when the Cenobites show up in the, in the hospital. But, um, yeah, I don't know. What, what sort of thoughts I, do you have along these lines too? I
1: guess it's a, it's a good point about the flower imagery, I get, I suppose. But I, I do disagree with that a little bit because what I was going to say is that I felt like they established Kirsty very early on as having a very sexy, or very sexy, very healthy sex life sorry about that slip there um, <laughs> but having a, a very healthy grasp on her own sexuality um, you know and and I guess it could be it could be argued maybe a little bit since she was very drunk but you know at the dinner party it's shown with her in the the I forget the character's name if he has one, but I don't think he even has one. <laughs> uh, it's Todd, you know, the, Todd. The guy or something, at the, isn't it? the dinner party. He's very flirtatious with her, and she's openly flirtatious mm. back. And then you know he's walking her home later. Uh, you know, and she's not all over him or anything. You know, she's not kind of the stereotypical uh, bad girl all over him, but she's also not the stereotypical conservative. You know, uh, kind of Christian analogy. You know, she's she's openly flirtatious with him. She's kissing him. You know, I, obviously I think it's implied that they slept together. Uh, you know, she's got a very healthy grasp on her sexuality, I think, from in the entirety of the movie. And, and I think it plays in contrast to Julia, who is also openly sexual, but is sort of, a, in a way, is victimized by the masculine. Um, you know, she is... She is not in control of her own sexuality. She has given it uh to the villainous Frank. Um, mm. you know, and, mm. and is kind of subservient to him, even and and I think again that is kind of Clive Barker playing in, in those areas that are not normally played in, because yeah, you do see this open graphic sexuality, um, but it you don't get the impression that it, it is Julia's own. Um of course I you know Well no, it's
0: it's it's Frank's and she she he's you
1: know, what Frank wants, Frank gets, that kind of thing. Right. Exactly. And hmm. and even though, you know, like I said Kirsty's going to come across as kind of the more innocent schoolgirl trope well that's not actually what she is you know so uh,
0: no she's meant to be like a university student or something like they never really tell you how old she is but like i don't know i guess probably about the age ashley lawrence was like 19 or 20 sure or she's like
1: she's got her own place mm. she's not living with her parents you know she is she's a fairly strong independent woman at the you know a young woman at this point um, so I, you know,
0: so it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that too, because I was watching it with, uh, uh my wife, um, the <laughs> other night and, uh, and it was the first time Alana had seen it, uh, and Alana kind of like, it gets the scene where she wakes up after having a nightmare about her dad being murdered or something, whatever that was about. And, um, Alana's first thing was like, why are they sleeping in separate beds? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah so well they've just moved to town you know you never know like uh, the <laughs> yeah so it is yeah so it is it is kind of yeah i hadn't thought about it the way you're describing it. but i think yeah you're probably on, on to something there maybe there's a i don't want to be all centrist sure but, uh, sure no <laughs> maybe and, there's maybe there's a synthesis somewhere between those two viewpoints
1: yeah and and you know there i'm sure there's lots of other perspectives you know i uh you know i i say that Julia was kind of victimized in, in her sexuality, but, you know, other people may have a completely different perception of that. You know, I'm, I'm sure when you start getting into, uh, you know, kinks and, um, you know, different sexual preferences people have, you know, people may read the Julia character completely differently than I have, you know, so
0: yeah and i think that to a degree like look i'm not part of the the kind of bdsm community so i don't want to um you know speak for them or anything like that um i i think certainly you can read it in light of some empowerment on that front maybe but but i guess there's a more base reading for someone who's not um part of that community I I sort of saw it her more as like well abused people can become abusers kind of thing sure. you know, in the sense that like she's been treated horribly by Frank but then by the end she's like possibly worse than Frank <laughs> yeah <know>? yeah <laughs> Ma- well, may- maybe not maybe not in the second film definitely I, I was going to say know, I think
1: the not... uh, the second film definitely establishes her as as being probably worse but.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah. The other, the other one that people often talk about, and I, I have mixed feelings about this one is the idea of, um, certain aspects being, uh, like things like the Cenobites being a metaphor for AIDS and things like that. Um, I, I, th- I wouldn't say it's easy to forget now, but, um, you, you know, the certainly 1987, the AIDS crisis was rife and you, you really did have people dying left, right and center. And, um, it wasn't really even till a couple of years later when um that, that that boy who that teenage boy who passed away, Ryan something, his name escapes me, but he sort of became a bit of a galvanizing figure in terms of showing like, well, anyone can can get AIDS, you know. Um, we, which is not personally what I think it should have taken to to help out people with AIDS prior, but but that was the attitude at the time, and to some degree is the attitude now. and no, I wish it weren't. We can all do a bit to to make sure it's not. But um, it uh, I think some have kind of read it as a metaphor for the like idea of overindulgence will lead you to be destroyed, essentially. Um, but I I, I don't know, and I think that there's probably issue to take with with that interpretation of things as well too though i can kind of see some of the reasons why people might have uh gravitated towards it once upon a time i suppose yeah. but uh, i don't know if you have any thoughts about that at all
1: i don't know i want to be careful on that because i uh, my perspective is is probably so ignorant in in the realm of the politics of that at, in the eighties, especially, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I certainly want to be respectful of other people's takes on that. I, I certainly, you know, I clearly obviously don't, don't see it that way, but to say mm-hmm. it, it wasn't maybe designed in that way. Um, you know, I, I can't say I, I do wonder if it is problematic, to read it that way but again I, I don't want to speak for anybody so i just want to be very careful. No, well,
0: but... well that was kind of my thing too i was kind of like are we being a bit reductionist here or yeah. something like that but but i don't know i don't know i i can kind of come away and see like well in the time it was made and it was written by a gay man and was going to feature music by gay people and that was very much day-to-day life for some of the, for some of those people very specifically it was very much part of day-to-day life but uh, i do worry that it's maybe um if not problematic, then maybe reductionist. Mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, and to me, I don't, I don't know. There's so much depth in the movie as a whole that I, I think can be taken from it. it mm-hmm. I, I guess reductionist is probably the best way to put it. It just seems like an oversimplified, uh, you know, an oversimplified metaphor to me. But yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I think too sometimes. Um, sometimes it's very easy to forget that people just like creating gross imagery to create gross imagery right. as well Too like, they're to like, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, and we certainly know Stephen King does that. He's like, ah, oh, yeah, this will disgust people or something <laughs> like that. Eli, Eli Roth. Like,
1: That's like his favorite thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I, Going to be controversial here. I don't like Eli Roth's films, and I don't think he has many more tricks up his sleeve. Than, <laughs> no, I you're you're not being controversial. Like, yeah, this is disgusting. Yeah, yeah, you're
1: yeah. not being controversial to me. I I tend to agree. Yeah. So,
0: um, I'm trying to think if there's there's anything else here. There was uh... oh, actually, this is one. I think he's here's a reading that I think has more validity. I think a lot of Barker's stuff really touches on kind of the. You know, oppressive nature of kind of suburban middle class life and how sort of boring and dull it can be. Um, and I, th- I think we sort of really see that with Julia in particular. Like, you know, because there's nothing overtly wrong with Larry. Um, he's just kind of just kind of a guy, you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that that's why some people have taken issue with the ending to a degree. Because uh, Kirsty's boyfriend is even more boring than Larry, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and yet at the end she's like really like w- whereas with like you can at least sort of see like well he's he's her father she you know he, of course she loves her father that you know he treats her very well that kind of thing um, but yeah the, at the end of it she's with a character who has. Uh, you know, quite a bit of screen time, but but makes absolutely zero impact right. <laughs> through it, which, uh, and I think that people struggle with that. Like you, you've given it for such a, for a movie that sort of really critiques, you know, suburban norms, like you kind of finished on a suburban norm, you know?
1: Right. Yeah, no, definitely. The, yeah. the only, the biggest thing that stands out about that boyfriend to me, uh, is when they're at the dinner party and, Kirstie tries to, and you know, this is why the idea of her sexuality can be a, a complex one. But at the dinner party, she tries to turn down a drink or suggest that she needs to slow down. And she says, mm-hmm. I won't be able to stand up. And this this guy that I assume she doesn't know, at least not very well at the time, looks to her and says, so lay down in kind of this provocative sort of flirtatious way you know which again can start to maybe imply or you know start to question issues of consent and, and things like that i don't know um, mm, mm, definitely, definitely but yeah. uh yeah and that's a whole nother <laughs> that's a, a whole nother thing to that you know you could really dive into but he Def- says definitely
0: that, but not but not an uncommon trope for the time either like, right exactly the,
1: yeah um and you know he says that right in front of her father, who kind of almost looks like a, like like, not not pleased by it, but not he, he certainly exactly, doesn't seem to be have really? any problem with it. You know,
0: look, it, it's it's probably not something I'd say in front of my father at all, <laughs> right? right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that's to <laughs> me that's like um, yeah. the biggest his biggest contr- I mean, it's not his biggest contribution to the film, but it's like the only thing he does that implies any sort of character or motivation or anything uh you know um, otherwise he's just kind of there sometimes in, in scenes with Kirsty.
0: yeah exactly and at the end like uh, i've seen a few people comment on how like blasé he is that there's these like horrifying creatures in front of him and so on he's, he's just kind of like you know the i think it's butterball is the last one to get killed off by having the the house fall on him or something right and um yeah butterball kind of walks out and he's sort of just like whoa you know <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. then, and then he sees the big skeleton dragon he's like oh like whereas you know ashley lawrence is just looking legitimately horrified at this like freakish thing you know so i don't want to have a go the guy because like you, you know look uh I, i'm sure he's a very nice man in <laughs> right life. right. i just you know but i, I think there were um yeah, maybe maybe some more notes uh, could have been taken yeah. there I guess. He he definitely didn't yeah. seem
1: to have as much of a grasp on what that character was supposed to be doing at any given time or or even thinking or feeling I I think so.
0: No, and to be fair I don't think he's given a lot
1: I don't think he was given a huge amount to work with to be right. honest so uh, yeah. you know it's it's yeah, we, we I
0: I try and be generous with with actors because while I haven't worked on films personally, I do have friends who have, and I I know that it, it, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes, and lines get cut and chopped up, and things like that. So, um, you know, not not a, probably not a career defining performance there, but uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily reflect on him as a person. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. important to keep perspective there. <laughs> um. I guess then maybe let's talk a little bit about the uh, where we might see the future of the franchise going. Because sure, sure. If if ever there's been a franchise handled poorly, it's it's Hellraiser, you know. Yeah. So, um, a year or so later, we got Hellraiser two, um, which which is which is a very good film. It's it's very distinct from um from the from the first one um, in terms of tone, in terms of. Uh, the type of movie it is it, it's it's kind of like an evil version of labyrinth or something mm-hmm. i i think personally yeah um and and if you like labyrinth and if you're ready to to uh, i don't know move past having seen that when you were young like uh, i definitely recommend hellraiser 2 um hellraiser 3 was actually the first one i saw in the series uh it's pretty it's pretty bad but it's a lot of fun uh, <laughs> uh, this this is where pinhead really becomes the main villain and uh, becomes outright evil as opposed to sort of um, just kind of an impartial judge type character. Right. Uh, but he's, uh, yeah, it was the first one I saw because for some reason it was always available in bargain bins over here. (laughs) So when I was about, uh, I picked up a copy on DVD for like $10 or something in about 2004, 2005 and, uh, and watched it then. And, uh, do, do recommend, do recommend, but definitely not consistent in themes and things like that. Uh, then number four was the last one that Clyde Barker had any involvement in and that one is rightly, um both rightly and wrongly maligned for being Hellraiser goes
1: to space.
0: (laughs) Uh,
2: Um, (laughs) I
0: don't even know uh,
1: where, honestly, where I stopped in the series. I know that I watched three, but I cannot say whether or not I've seen past that. There was a time where I was trying to watch them all. And then at one point, I made a conscious decision to give up because I really liked the first two. And then I, I realized pretty quickly in three that okay. This is going in a completely different. It's going in a completely different direction from the things that I really liked about the first two movies, and and that's where I kind of they then they did turn Pinhead into more of a Freddy Krueger type monster as as opposed to uh you know it being more of about a a tonal kind of hellacious sort of setting type thing you know. Um I, I felt like it really took a dramatic departure and that's that's where I I'm sure I'll revisit them eventually, but I lost interest <laughs> pretty quickly after after three.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well three is a campy slasher film, and if you watch it with that mindset, it's great. Um but if you watch it expecting to I don't know, touch on some of the deeper themes of the first two films, then um, you're going to be very disappointed. So, <laughs> um, 4 actually had a lot of potential because it's got time travel elements and, and um, well, not time travel elements, but it kind of follows the history of the the puzzle box through uh, into the future. And, and, and the, the concept is there, but the film, it's not. Um, it's probably most notable these days for having Ben from Parks and Recreation. Okay, in it. Um, so so that's yeah. the last <laughs> one I, I saw because
1: I specifically remember yeah. watching the one with Adam Scott in it. So but,
0: yeah, 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 and it's like Ben, like, the, and, and he's like this debauched French nobleman, who's <laughs> yeah, obviously kind of riff on the Marquis de Sade, but not even probably not thinking about it even that much. So you know? yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the so the 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 franchise the and look every few years a new hellraiser film comes out i think the most recent one was 2018 which was hellraiser judgment um that was directed by gary uh tuncliffe i think you say his name who originally used to be a makeup designer on some of the older hellraiser films and uh very mixed reports on that one but it's pretty mixed reports on everything after the first two to be honest um the, as far as I can tell, it's now in the kind of situation where they make a new film every couple of years so they can retain the rights. Yeah. There has been discussion about doing a proper reboot since about 2006 or 2007. Um, if you look up Kai Barker's Wikipedia page at the moment, it has the Hellbound Heart listed as coming out sometime in the next couple of years um you, you know like essentially reboot slash remake of the original story uh don't hold your breath like <laughs> <Yeah>. you know <laughs> sure. I, I it, it'd be it'd be nice if it does but I I don't know that it's necessary I I don't know that um you, you know as much as I love Clyde Barker as much as I love Pinhead and Doug Bradley I I just don't like it, it's not the sort of series where I need 10 films you know like Friday the 13th I'm i I'm happy with all 10 films like they're wildly variable in quality but you know like for the 10th film we got Jason X which is legitimately one of the best ones <laughs> so, like that's that's not going to happen with Hellraiser they're not going to suddenly turn around and put like you, you know spend the money they need to make it a special franchise again you know mm-hmm. Um, maybe if they did reboot it and remake it, but I don't know. I, I have really mixed feelings about that. Um, well, I think part of uh, sorry, you you go, you go. I was
1: just gonna say, I I feel like again, it's that question of can you ever feel nostalgic, <laughs> and and I feel like anytime I think about <laughs> movies that I would love to get rebooted a right way, because they're I, I'm not a big person. I'm not one of those people that wants everything rebooted. I I don't think it's necessary. Mm. In fact, I I do think it is kind of insulting to the legacy of some movies that they reboot. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And Hellraiser could probably be in that category, but I do also think, you know, the more I I read about some of the original plans or even some of the source material, I, I feel like there's so much rich lore there that they could explore, but... They would need to do it in the same capacity that they did in the first film, but instead, what happens is we we try to modernize everything for current audiences, mm. you know. And whereas Hellraiser's to me can be pretty A24 timeless.
0: Hellraiser. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And you know, to me, Hellraiser is a, a pretty timeless film. Uh, you know, it doesn't. I mean, obviously, there's dated elements to it, but it's not a movie that you're like bored by you know a lack of technology or anything like that you know so i i don't think we need to constantly remake movies and say okay now we're making it but the entire cast is 17 year olds that are just getting off one by one you know and and i i think movies can do it the right way but they're so focused right now the way the industry is they're so focused right now on return on investment that i i don't know that Mm. it's possible to make a quality reboot or a remake the way that that it would need to be done
0: well i mean at the moment we're living in the big year of a24 and quote-unquote elevated horror and, and and look you know i i really like some of those films so i don't i don't want to sort of shit over that it's just, it's just a trend that's going on at the moment and and horror is as trend-driven as any other film, sure. sector of film, as, as, as much as some of its big fans don't want to admit that it's true. You know, like, imagine how, if we'd grown up in the 80s, how sick we'd be of, like, bloody slasher films <laughs> yeah, or something like yeah. that. You know, like, we'd be like, another fucking slasher film. Like, you know, and, and now it's more like, oh, another remake of an obscure Italian classic. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the i think that the time in terms of some of the subject matter and tone it deals with uh, i think that maybe the time could be right on that front but uh, conversely uh, i what i could see happening is someone like a24 doing what they did with midsummer right so uh, midsummer is the wicker man like but from a slightly different viewpoint sure. And so when it came out, like, when it came out, I was like, that was fun. I enjoyed it. But, like, geez, I felt like my bladder was going to explode <laughs> halfway through. And also, like, this this is just the Wicker Man in so many points. Um, same with Hereditary. And I, I really, really loved Hereditary. I thought it was great. It was one of my favourite movies I saw that year. But it is also just, like, it's a riff on stuff like Suspiria or... Um, uh you know some of lucio lucio fulci's films like the beyond and that kind of thing and and that's why it has that whacked out ending that doesn't really square with a lot of the other stuff that goes on in there um and so i could see someone like that doing a film that is essentially like a hellraiser remake but without ever calling it that you Mm -hmm. know so yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know what if if you've got any sort of thoughts or dream casting or anything. Or...
1: Oh, that's tough. One thing I definitely would do, um, not in terms of of dream casting, uh, but I I would love to see more uh, less less pinhead, and I don't mean less of him on screen, but less of him being kind of a central leader character, and more of the. Uh, which I think was the original plan was to have the Cenobites as, as kind of a more of a a team of you know uh, demons or, or mm. whatever they're they're called yeah, explorers on the edge of explorers. human experience or whatever. Angels yeah. <laughs> um... to some, demons <laughs> yeah, to exactly. yeah. uh You know, I would love to see. I don't need a million Cenobites, but those original uh, four. You know, it would be great to just kind of explore, you know, have more personality in them, but in a menacing way, you know, in a dark and menacing way. I don't mean they got to be jumping and crawling all over the walls, um, but, you know, I'd love to see more kind of depth from those those elements of it. Um I also think the begin the prologue is a bit rushed in-, in Hellraiser, so I would love to see it explore more of Frank's kind of original exploration of the hedonism and the the occult and stuff like that, you know. Um mm-hmm. elements like that I-, it- I think could really be strengthened in a in a remake. But the book, the
0: book's definitely more explicit on on that front, like, and it sort of details a bit more, and I I kind of, I kind of get why the the movie discarded elements of that, because in for one thing, like, oh, well, I mean, they kind of imply elements of it in the movie when like Julia finds his box of Polaroids and there's just all these um, photos of him with various sex workers and, and, and that kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, no, the, it, it, it is kind of quite understated and if you're not paying attention to certain things, it would be very easy to be like, who's this guy? Why yeah. has he got this box? You know, I like, yeah,
1: Well, um, and especially when the next time you see him, he's, you know, without flesh and, and uh, yeah, muscle and it, everything. So it, you know, it's, I, I know when I saw it at a young age, it, I, I got it, but it. I think it did take me a second to make that connection that that mm. this this creature was Frank, that guy at the very beginning of the movie. You know,
0: but, mm, mm. yeah, because they never they never name him on screen. It, well, initially, initially when he first shows up or anything like that, it's just like oh, he's a guy in a dark room with some candles yeah. and uh, his magic box, <laughs> and you don't really
1: get a good look at him when he's at the table buying the box. You know, so. Um, no, no, no. You know, when he shows no. up in the in Julia's flashback and introduces himself, uh, you know, if you're not paying close attention, like you said, you don't know that that guy is the same guy that was in, in the beginning of the movie necessarily. But I, I think you can still get from the movie what you need to without that. But I, I do mm. think that could be tied together a little bit better.
0: Well, one one criticism I do have of it and and well maybe criticism isn't the right word, more of an observation, is on the whole it definitely feels like a first film. Like and, and it was for so many of them. Like it was Doug Bradley's first film. It was like he'd pretty much just been a stage actor up to that point. It was um ashley lawrence's first film like it was Kai barker's first film like he didn't he, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know like there are a lot firsts there and i think there's certain maybe pacing decisions and things like that that might have been made slightly differently but i do kind of like that he brought that sort of stage play aesthetic to it as well too yeah. so it's um yeah i i so, really
1: enjoy any movie that can take place primarily in one location and do it well uh has mm. has my respect for sure um well
0: that's that's also why i really like the mummy the old one with boris karloff like you could stage that as a play relatively easily yeah. like you would need a few lighting effects but that's about it really yeah so. and reservoir dogs
1: um, while not a horror is a very obvious example of that as as well you know
0: yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um one, so one bad sign of this remake, if it does get off the ground, because there's discussion of a TV series and discussion of a movie, and I'm not totally clear on whether they'd interconnect or whether they'd both come out or, or what the story is here. David S. Goyer's involved at oh. in some capacity. <laughs> okay. and. Yeah, so that that I read that yesterday, maybe, and I was like, oh, like, well, I don't want to see this. <laughs> yeah, and no, honestly,
1: nothing against him, but this isn't really his his playground. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not really no.
0: no I, 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 this, this is a this is a podcast that's not a fan of David Escort. Okay, so, <laughs> okay. okay. You know, like, I'm forgotten Blade Three, David like... You know, yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, and I, I think other factors have come in too, like Miramax, I'm not sure if they still own the rights, but they certainly did for a long time. So I think like um, obviously all the stuff that went on with Harvey Weinstein has, um, uh, well, you know, one, th- this is obviously not the biggest impact of, of his crimes. Um, but one thing, one consequence of, of his crimes was that a bunch of, um, you know, filmmakers and so on had their, their projects either hold up, held up or cancelled too, um, because he couldn't fucking keep his dick in his pants, you know, and um, behave himself in the way a normal person should. So um, there was talk of Pascal Augier being involved at one point, the guy who directed Martyrs, which I think would have been great. Um, but he apparently exited over, quote-unquote, creative differences, yeah. um, which is what everyone exits over. You know? <laughs> sure. <Like no> one, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not like he's going to say, well, the producer was a dickhead and blah.
1: <laughs> But, you know, um, honestly, I feel like a lot of times, if you really boiled it down, it probably does come down to creative differences in that, yeah, they want to do so much more than the producers will <laughs> allow them to do, you know? Mm, mm. but. Well, you, you've seen martyrs, haven't you? So, I, like the—I um, don't know if I have. Tom,
0: it's—it's it's worth a watch. It's definitely worth a watch, and you can see it and see why it might be a good fit for the material. It's pretty harrowing, um, but conversely, uh, I can see why the studio would be like—he would go in and say, "Well, I want to make a kind of really." balls out hellraiser and the studio would be like no no we're giving you this much money we want you to do it this way we just want your name and and you know i can see why that wouldn't square very well essentially yeah um the most recent development i could find is apparently barker as as of quite recently is in the process of suing to get the movie rights back um, I'm not totally clear on what the lawsuit is, but from what I can tell, it's a little bit similar to that Friday the 13th one mm-hmm. that was doing the rounds a few years ago, Yeah. Um, where the creator was sort of trying to reclaim the the rights of the original stuff he'd developed versus how the direction the character had been taken in and so on and so forth. But I, I guess we'll sort of see how that shakes out over the next few years, I guess, because I can't imagine it will be one that they wrap up quickly. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's a uh, a lot of, there's a lot of talk about that. I I think in the industry now uh, is kind of going back to the rights of original creators and, uh, you know, them being able to have ownership or at least get more money, uh, for the things that maybe they originally signed off on and, you know, not, not really, uh, expecting that much from it and and now kind of coming back and wanting to wanting a second look at some of those uh some of those deals
0: yeah as someone who's done a huge amount of work for hire writing work over the years if i had created someone like pinheads and and hellraiser signed it over for some nominal amount of money 35 years ago when i was younger and well well successful Albeit much less successful writer, like I, I'd be hugely pissed off, like because it's you've sacrificed this. It's it's such a disingenuous deal. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, he's the, you can make your movie, but you're signing everything over to us. Okay, cool. Well, okay. By the way, we're actually going to keep pumping out movies for that character for the next thirty years, and you don't get to have any input or say in it. You know, right? Like, it's it's incredibly disingenuous. So, yeah. Which is not a new thing in Hollywood, but uh, yeah, yeah. Did, so. But I, I think there is yeah. a
1: rene- well, not maybe not, it's not renewed, but there is a new effort to you know kick back against that a little bit, which uh, you know is is probably a good thing in some respects for consumers. Um, you know, looking for uh, content or products that are being held up by that. There, you know, there that may mm. not be a great thing, but.
0: Well, it'll be interesting for the precedent it sets. Um, If he loses the case and he can't get it back, that'll obviously set a precedent. If he wins it and does get it back, that'll be... um It'll be interesting to see what it does with conglomerates like Disney and Marvel and and um, Warner Brothers and and who starts sort of trying to take control back of their creations. Aside from that, because the downside and and I don't know if downside is the right word, but there's definitely some creators who just say, right, I'm taking. My thing out of circulation forever you can all get fucked yeah yeah. (laughs) um you know alan moore being a prime example like he'd have everything out of print if he could and to some degree i understand why but then you'd have other people who are like oh no we can actually give this character the care and treatment that they need to to i don't know make a more viable movie or something like that so yeah but it's a tough it's a tough thing and I think it's going to be very case-by-case, case, to be honest. I don't think we're ever going to see, like, Bill Fingers' um, relative showing up at, at Warner Brothers and, like, winning back the rights to all of Batman. No, yeah, like certainly that. not. Yeah. yeah. Um, well... I don't want to finish on a downbeat note, okay? Be, because the but the history of the Hellraiser franchise is kind of a bummer <laughs> after the first movie, but um, yeah, I, I look, I, I absolutely think like if you have any interest in horror whatsoever, Hellraiser's a must see. Um, I, uh, it's it's maybe not as strange and weird and wonderful as it could be, but it's definitely strange and weird and wonderful. And um, it was very important to me. It's like uh, when I saw it in my twenties, it's still very important to me now. I consider myself very fortunate to have met Clive Barker in person, uh, and um, do recommend definitely check it out if you haven't seen it already. And if you have seen it already, watch it again. Right? But <laughs> we're, um, would it, any any kind of closing thoughts before we uh, uh, shout out your various projects? Adam? Or? No,
1: no, I I would uh, echo everything you just said. I I think you know for minor critiques that we may have made i think hellraiser overall is a uh, a great movie and certainly a, a great um part of horror canon that um should be should be viewed um see it when you're young if you can <laughs> when it mm-hmm. when it's most effective before you've become too uh uh cynical and and maybe seen other things that kind of diminish what that what that movie can really offer so
0: watch it without your parents permission <laughs> yeah um, exactly yeah yeah, I'm not gonna like your parents want the best for you, but watch it without them. <laughs> <Right. right? laughs> so, Adam, where can listeners find you? Where, where, where's what's what are your projects, and where can people track you down?
1: Sure, uh, you can check me out. My podcast uh, that I, I share with uh, my partner Blake is uh, called Shelf Life, a collector's podcast. Um, I am also on Twitter th- uh, for that podcast at uh at Shelf Life host on Twitter. Um, I. I do also have a much more uh, limited uh, Twitter presence from my personal account, which is at Libra Juice. Uh, That would be like the astrology sign Libra Juice. Um, That's that's where he's always going and stirring up political right um, controversy. that <laughs> is where yeah i I'll, i'm much more focused on on politics there and a lot of times even on local uh things where i'm at so it's not going to be the strongest <laughs> place to follow me but i am there if you're, you're interested um and then i am also uh tom we've talked about it a little bit i'm not far enough along probably to pitch it uh, officially yet, but I am working on a.
0: No, no, you got to you got to pitch it now's now's the moment. <laughs> okay. to, like, elevator pitch time. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: I am also currently working on a, a new podcast that is largely a solo project, but I will be having guests on every episode, uh, and that's going to focus largely on anthology television, uh, like Twilight Zone, Tales from the Crypt, Black Mirror. Um, I'm actually going to try and cover as much anthology series as I can, which is why the uh, it is a lot of work and very overwhelming because uh, when I got into it, I did not realize. How much uh, anthology television there there was out there, so um, so that will be forthcoming, I suppose.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you have a rough release date in mind? Um, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm or, gonna or, sh- or would it be best not to pin you down? Or, uh, just... <laughs>
1: uh, I'm gonna shoot for uh, probably maybe early to mid-February. I, my intention for it is to um, actually record and edit all the episodes prior to release. Um, I feel like it would slow me down a lot if I was trying to do them one at a time. Um, so I do have all my, my first kind of season, I guess, of seven episodes planned out, uh, and most of those guests lined out. So I just need to kind of get the recording and, and editing done, and then I'll hopefully start rolling them out in, in February maybe.
0: And, and I will say listeners, like, if you're ever considering starting your own podcast, that's not a bad approach to take. Um, it, it, if even if you don't do them all at least do a few ahead of time because it's very easy to say I'm going to start a podcast and then put together something and you do one or two episodes and it's fun and exciting and then you realize you're just running behind on deadlines yeah. perpetually after that So <laughs> well and, and anybody so, yeah.
1: you know who happens to follow my other podcast Shelf Life knows that Blake and I take the approach of recording one at a time and we have never been able to maintain a consistent schedule doing that and it's fine I, I think it works uh for what we do. Um but certainly for my project I would I would like to be able to maintain a uh schedule and I think the only way I can do that is if I get everything done uh beforehand. So
0: yeah, and that's that's kind of what I aim for here too, to at least have a backlog, I guess. So yeah. <laughs> um but look thank you so much for coming on today, Adam. I really appreciate it. And uh it's been fantastic talking about Hellraiser with you. Yeah. Um, I guess for my own shout-outs, definitely go listen to Shellfire for Collector's Podcast. I'm I'm on a couple of episodes too, so if you enjoy my dulcet tones, you can hear more of them over there. Um, a shout-out again to um, Evil Eye on the Cinepunks network. Um, and as well as that, uh, if you want to listen to Coil, who we mentioned earlier, YouTube is actually your best bet. Um, I don't really know what's going on with the rights with their stuff, but a lot of it's not on Spotify. A lot of it's not on... um uh you know band camp or anything like that so honestly youtube's your best bet so (laughs) which is not ideal like but uh but that you know we we live in an imperfect world with imperfect options um and last but not least go read some of Kai barker's short stories or novels and uh listen to watch watch hellraiser so yeah thanks for coming again guys and we'll speak soon